everyone, and welcome to the Cinematic Schematic, the official podcast of thecinematropolis.com. I'm your host, the editor-in-chief of The Cinematropolis, Caleb Masters. In this month's episode, we cap off our look back at the career of M. Night Shyamalan by reviewing the hotly anticipated conclusion to his unbreakable trilogy, Glass. You would think if he had the amount of time he supposedly had to stew on this kind of idea, and then the retrospect of the wave of of superhero films and superhero cinema that we have now, that there would be something a little more, I guess, interesting. Later, Alexandra takes us on a journey through Shyamalan's collaborations with the iconic film composer James Newton Howard. Spoilers, it ends with a twist. They replace the room tone for each scene. There's no absolute kind of like silence because that usually that doesn't work. It just sounds bad. They replaced it with people breathing. Closing out the show, I will be talking with the filmmakers behind the upcoming body horror film Shifter in our third audio diary with Jacob and Zachary Burns. What was the most uh, scenes you scheduled in a day? There is probably, I think there was probably one day where it may have been like 15 scenes in a day. Mm. It's all coming at you next. everyone, and welcome to the Cinematic Schematic, the official podcast of thecinematropolis.com. I'm your host, Caleb Masters, and today we will be doing a spoiler-free review of M. Night Shyamalan's new film, Glass, followed by a spoiler-filled analysis of his latest film that has been dubbed or hyped as the quote-unquote comeback of M. Night Shyamalan, or the completion of the M. Night Shyamalan comeback. Joining us for this discussion of M. Night Shyamalan's East Rail 177 trilogy is a twist! No, you thought Laron Chapman was going to be on the mic, but actually... We're talking with our associate editor, Daniel Bokemper. I am so sorry to disappoint that I am not Laron, but I am nonetheless happy to be here. So all month long at the Cinematropolis, we've been taking a look at M. Night Shyamalan, uh, mostly Daniel, <laughs> but yeah. uh, we've had a lot of other writer, a handful of other writers contribute to some of the ideas uh, we have looking at the, the career because M. Night Shyamalan, love him or hate him, certainly holds a very specific place in our pop culture, a very interesting right. one. He is a household name. Like, you you know who he is. That's, like, everyone kind of knows the the stereotypes and the characteristics and what he's going to bring to the table, for better or for worse. Uh, maybe it's just a twist ending. Maybe it's something a little more interesting than that. Uh, but at the end of the day, we, we know who Shyamalan is. This guy who came out of nowhere, delivered the sixth sense, which just blew everyone away. Box office hit crazy plot twist that has worked its way uh, into our pop culture lexicon which is mm-hmm. crazy so obviously very effective uh, he went on to make uh, followed up followed up the the sixth sense by unbreakable a movie that while not as big as the sixth sense certainly had a very big impact on, on a lot of viewers and it still made a couple hundred million dollars which back in 2000 was still pretty pretty decent returns right um, and then of course he had signs which was another critical hit and then after that we saw 
This, Less this, so. The, the man go from the top of a mountain, fall, fall, fall he, very quickly. He, the into, village, yeah, quickly became the butt of jokes. I mean, it, and that's what it was. It wasn't the worst film, even revisiting it now. It, it, it felt like it still had some staying power. Like there was, there was something of value, but it just went downhill from there and, and continued. And we really didn't see any kind of rebound until what 2013 may people might argue the visit was kind I, of I think a, the, no I think the visit was actually a big turnaround for him because he went back to his roots yeah it had some horror elements to it and it had a neat little twist but it, the, the, there was no expectation it turned out pretty well I think it was a it was a d- decent little hit which yeah. gave him uh, the money he needed to self-fund split he delivered another M. Night Shyamalan twist in a way we hadn't seen before we're gonna more on that in a minute so we've seen this director rise to the height of uh, this, this 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 young creative director the Icarus of filmmakers. He, really. he was he was at one point dubbed the next Steven Spielberg. Yeah. from the from the highest of heights, fall very quickly to being the butt end of jokes. A critical his films became critically panned, and people lost interest very quickly. And then all of a sudden, slowly but surely, he he was air quotes humbled, and then started climbing the mountain once again with the visit, and then split. And here the the question that lies in: Can he do it? Can he give us three? If he gives us three satisfying films in a row, delivering with glass. Is this a quote-unquote return? Is he out of director jail? Can the world love him again the way they did when he entered into our pop culture with, with uh, The Sixth Sense? We're going we're gonna to discuss all that here in just one moment. But before we delve into our review of Glass, I do remind you listeners out there that you can find all of these essays uh, that we've been writing all month long at The Cinematropolis at thecinematropolis.com. If you want to keep up with our continued conversation about M. Night Shyamalan as well as our next month's theme, you can uh, follow us on social media at facebook.com forward slash The Cinematropolis or on Instagram and Twitter at The Cinematrop. Daniel, are you ready to jump into today's review of Glass? I am so ready to, to, to go into that broken glass. You want to go into broken glass? Yeah, yeah. Let's just do it. Hardcore match. Question is, glass, will it remain unbreakable or will it be shattered? Elijah's changed over the years. He's given up. We keep him heavily sedated. But there is a reason for that. He's too smart for them. You won't be lonely anymore. You have two new friends. The three of you think you have extraordinary gifts, like something out of a comic book. I've developed an effective treatment for this disorder. Glass, as IMDb describes it. Security guard David Dunn uses his supernatural abilities to track Kevin Wendell Crumb, a disturbed man who has 24 personalities. So that's the entire synopsis. That's that's IMDb. IMDb. IMDb you know, I, I'm just too lazy to write my own synopses, but IMDb synopses are kind of worthless 98% of the time. But I yeah, that's like really truncated, but no, that's fine. It is, I mean, a- it is accurate. It is accurate, though. No, no that's true. Yeah. Can't knock him for that. We can't really talk about, I don't think we can talk about glass until we talk about our relationship with this unbreakable trilogy. It's mm-hmm. been like, uh, as we said at the top of the show, it's been dubbed the uh, East Rail 177 trilogy recently. Uh, that would be the, his original film, uh, 2000 film, Unbreakable, followed by Split and concluding with glass. So Daniel, I, I uh, have to know, like, what has your relationship been with these movies? Uh, with these films in particular, not, you know, whereas you might be the more of the seasoned vet. I am the summer child. I did not watch unbreakable until 
this month in preparation of writing on Unbreakable. The same with Split and and subsequently, I guess, Glass. I got to see. So, so in the last month, you have watched both of these films. So you had exactly. no real attachment to this. To to I was like aware of them, and people had recommended them, but I just never, you know, I I don't know. I maybe I was at that point in the lull of M Night Shyamalan where I didn't want to to even give him a chance until maybe I had a reason to. Sure, sure. And uh and I'm glad I did, actually, because both both Unbreakable more so, but Split as well, I think are are exceptional pieces of film. Uh, but it did kind of sour knowing that there's a relationship between them did probably tank. Oh, oh yeah. So to, so yeah. did you know that Split was a a pseudo sequel to to Unbreakable? Yeah. Going in, yes. Okay. And you so you think that kind of tainted that film a it little did. bit? It definitely did. Yeah. Okay. So my relationship with Unbreakable is very much like you would expect from a you know a middle middle class uh, middle class boy who grew up in the two thousands. Um, I saw it. I think I want to say probably like two thousand three, two thousand four. Didn't see it in theaters, but I had seen it not long after. Uh, and I went into the video store and rented that in Sixth Sense because I weirdly enough I had seen Signs before I saw those other two. Uh, and I went and rented those other two and watched them. And I was like, wow, this Unbreakable man, this is this is great. And it, it was really interesting because I was like, this is a this is a deconstruction of uh, like superhero. When I was young, I didn't know deconstruction, but I noticed that I was like, this movie is really reflecting on the nature of superheroes. Right. And even at that time, there really weren't many superheroes to speak of. I think when I had seen it, Spider-Man had just come out. Yeah. This movie actually released just after the original X-Men in 2000. Mm-hmm. And I caught it a couple years later, right after Spider-Man would have come out. So Spider-Man 1, Sam Raimi's Spider-Man 1, really is what proved, I think, to a lot of exec- studio executives that, whoa, we should start throwing money on the superhero train. And so it's really weird because it was reflective. It was kind of analyzing like superhero tropes long before they had picked up yeah. in pop culture the way they are today. But I was the kid who like grew up watching all the superhero cartoons and mm-hmm. read a bunch of the comics. So I was like, oh, yeah, this this movie is is paying respect to comic books. It's respecting comic books. Isn't that cool? Right. I, I, it's it's a, it's a, such a strange artifact, though, because it doesn't feel anything like any comic book I'd read at the time. No. It doesn't feel like any superhero movie I've, I had seen before or since. It is a very interesting film, hmm. but I will also say that I rewatched it just before Sin Glass, and it had probably been a solid decade since I'd even rewatched it. Yeah, and it certainly holds up much better in my memory than it did on rewatch. I do think Shyamalan's direction in, in Unbreakable is exceptional, maybe the best it's ever been. It's a very surprisingly very quiet, very introspective. The atmosphere, I feel it. He's got lots of long takes. One thing that always sticks out to me about his direction is the way he he gets really creative with how he frames stuff. Yeah. Uh, like, uh, for instance, there's one point where he he puts the camera behind a curtain with the wind blowing and you get really little, little again, like fractured glimpses of what's going on in the room or. Yeah. Anyway, he does that a lot. I, and right. I was like, man, this really his direction here is 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 exceptional. I think it's uh, one of his best films from a director standpoint. The, the script, on the other hand. I think it worked better in 2000 or when I saw it in probably 2002, 2003, when uh, we our culture had not been inundated with superhero tropes in the way it is. Because at the time, it's like, whoa, the fact they're even talking about this in a film is awesome. Mm -hmm. But now, looking back now, we have just been inundated and beat over the head with all sorts of superhero tropes. 
I mean, it, it, between television and film and, and video games, everyone is super aware of how the how superhero stories work. So now it reads as, the script reads is especially heavy handed. I thought, yeah, it doesn't. It didn't feel like it it aged that well. Even watching it for the first time, it definitely felt like a film a bit of its time, but not entirely. Too the argument still has a a high amount of validity. I I think it's it's still. Again, it's almost prophetic. It's like it's like in a way it might be criticizing something we haven't quite hit. Like, you know, these these rumblings that that beget the tidal wave that is the the Marvel Cinematic Universe and then the DC. Well, no, you know, one thing uh, and I am certainly I'm going to go ahead and cite uh, Matt Singer over at Screen Crush wrote a really great essay after rewatching Unbreakable. I thought it was a really great idea because one thing even I noticed when I when I finished it, I was like, well, the things I liked about it, I don't know if they held up quite as well. But there are new things I noticed about that are super crazy relevant about yeah. toxic fandoms. I mean, Samuel Jackson is a toxic fan. Right. He is the guy who can't find his place in this world. He's, he is so devoted to trying to find a purpose for himself. It is a problem that exists in our culture that I think that Unbreakable hit on before we were really talking yeah, about Yeah, a toxic belief parlaying into a violent behavior. Yes. Um, yeah, very, very, again, almost prophetic in that sense. I don't want to give... Shyamalan too much credit because it's not a perfect film. I don't I think he was making an observation, but I don't think he realized how in touch with the culture it actually was uh, or how Mm -hmm. air quotes prophetic. I think he was just trying to show kind of the dark side of fandom at the time a little bit. I do think the end of the movie still holds up really well for me. I'm I'm a big sucker for the whole like nemesis arch nemesis story. Uh, I think Quentin Tarantino was one of the first people I remember making this observation about how this was uh, the Superman origin story, Mm -hmm. Uh, you know, and we're talking like old classic Superman who can't fly, you know, like the, yeah. the OG runs around rooftops and beats people up sort of thing. That leads me to split, which is, uh, you know, split was getting good, good buzz. And I went and saw it that, that first day it came out, it had been some film festivals and I'd saw the buzz was good. I'm like, Oh, okay. I'm not yeah. someone. And you know, I, I am James game. I am game to watch James McAvoy pretty much in anything. Yeah. And he looked like he was having fun in the trailer. So I was like, all right, I'm gonna go check it out. And I thought um, the whole time watching split, and actually, you can go listen. I think it was on uh, Good Trash Media's Back to the Movies podcast when I was hosting that at the time. Me and Alexandra Bohannon did a review of it. And uh, so you can hear our thoughts there. But uh, it, it was one of those where I thought it was a really wonky psychological thriller. I was like, this right. is, I mean, it was fun, but I was like, this is really wonky and weird tonally all over the place. Like, mm-hmm. I, it's one of the, it reminded me a lot of that 90s movie, Identity, which, uh, you know, another movie about split personality from a very different, a, a different approach to the story, but that really goofiness that I, I, yeah, I remember. And, and Shyamalan, by extent, his, often his, his dialogue and sometimes the way maybe his characters, while being, can't possibly well developed, they still feel a bit clunky. And that makes the film unassuming, I think, to some extent. You don't expect it to be what it's not. You just think this is just Shyamalan maybe being Shyamalan. Yeah, yeah, exactly. He he kind of uses what we know about him against us a little bit. And then, yeah. so whenever the, the post-credits scene roll, and I was like, okay, this is a fine movie. Post-credits roll, I'm, I'm hearing the, the Unbreakable theme, and I recognize it, but I couldn't remember at the time. Like I was like, where have I heard this before? And then the second you see David Dyer in the diner, my head just explodes. I, I, <laughs> I, I'm serious. I would rank it among the 10 at least i don't know maybe top 10 or at least in one of the greatest movie going experiences i've had in the last 10 years where we i thought i was over being tricked by Shyamalan, and i was like oh there's not really a big twist in this one that's and i thought it was good i was like all right well that's that's cool but then when he when it revealed that oh my god i thought i was watching a psychological horror thriller no i was really watching an unbreakable universe super villain origin story. Right. It reframed how I thought about the movie. Yeah. And the, and the fact that this had played at film festivals, it hadn't gotten out. I hadn't heard about it. I didn't even get a whiff of it throughout the movie. Mm. And it just, it, it, I was like Shyamalan 
pull the Shyamalan. I didn't know he could still do that because it yeah. had become the button of jokes. But I think he did it in a way that was very clever. And it wasn't necessarily within the context of the movie. It was using the audience's expectations it kind of in a meta, at a meta level. Oh, you think you're watching this, but not, not only are you not watching this, it's not really a plot twist in the, within the movie itself. It's for the audience being like, Oh, you think you're watching this, but actually you're watching an entirely different movie set in my own universe. You know, um, I thought it was really brilliant. Uh, I got to give credit to him. I, I thought it was great. So all this brings me to glass, a movie that, uh, Shawan has, wanted to make supposedly since he finished unbreakable and has been talking about on the record for years and years and years. The reason I spent so much time talking about these things is because to help you give an idea of what sort of expectations fall on this film. Right. So with that, all that said, Daniel, let's, let's tell the people what our actual review of glasses, Daniel, what did you think of the film? Not, not, not great. Really not Kind of disappointing, ultimately. I think even not... I, I can only imagine probably what it is for you, Caleb, to have the almost 20 years of... of I guess maybe not realizing it, ultimately. But but at least in the past three years, the, the hype towards that film. Not having that, really just having the last month of experiences. But it just felt not, not very well concluded. It made me question if he ever intended for this to be a, a trilogy in parts two. Like, he wondered... I wonder... I don't know. You just you would think if he had the amount of time he supposedly had to stew on this kind of idea, and then the retrospect of the wave of, of superhero films and superhero cinema that we have now, that there would be something a little more, um, I guess, interesting. Maybe that's where the disappointment comes from: is that it wasn't quite as intriguing. It did kind of just feel like a, another one of the the Shyamalan nameless Shyamalan films. Uh, so yes, it, when you say that the one of the nameless Shyamalan films, you're talking about the ones that were so bad we'd rather forget they existed. Word. You guys yeah. you remember that movie he made that weird the the weird movie with Will Smith and Jaden uh, Smith about Scientology? <laughs> Not at all. <laughs> good. Good. It's as if it was made after Earth itself uh, yeah uh, uh daniel i i think i'm just gonna go ahead and echo your sentiments because uh i take comfort in hearing that someone who has just recently in the last month watched parts one and two had a similar feeling because i also really did not like this movie and i was worried and i've been really reflecting i got called out was well it's because your expectations were high and they were i think it's they're justifiably high but also i don't like this movie not just because it didn't quote unquote meet my expectations. And I didn't even have specific expectations per se. I just wanted it to deliver something satisfying. And when yeah. I say, and when I say satisfying, what, <laughs> what satisfying means to me, what it means to a lot of people is not the same thing. I don't need a crowd. I don't want a crowd pleasing movie that makes me feel good. I want a movie that justifies its own existence. Right. And what I was hoping to get from glass was, as you've already kind of laid out there, He's been stewing on this movie for at least 15 plus years, supposedly. Mm -hmm. And for him to have this movie within it, cooking in his imagination and for him to actually pull off Split, which I, I think Split was really good. I mean, um, uh, I'd say like a four out of five star movie. I thought it, I really, really enjoyed it. I yeah. love McAvoy's performance and it, it. Yeah, it was good. And I, I, uh, I expected this film to be able to take those things and make a concluding story that not only justify its existence, but it would justify its existence by having something to say about superheroes that isn't being said everywhere else or having clear ideas that work together to tell us something we don't already know, or at least make us think about something a little differently that we already know. Yeah. And I do not think glass on any level delivers that. I didn't need spectacle. I don't need fan service or, or references. That's not what I'm talking about. 
I'm talking about a movie that actually has something to add to the conversation. Right. And I feel like I'm unbreakable is a weird animal because I wanted it did add to the conversation, but it came out, it happened before the conversation, the conversation really started, started. Right. So I was hoping this movie would be able to kind of take that unique, that unique style and feeling and apply that same logic to the, the culture we had today. And I don't think this movie does that on any level. No, it fell victim to the own institution. It seemed to try and challenge in a way. This movie spends most of the time telling us why comic books and comic book fans are ridiculous and doesn't just tell us this like through storytelling. No, they literally tell you. Yeah. <laughs> like it's the, 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 and that's the other thing. So not only did it not deliver on what I'd hoped it would deliver, this movie is preachy as all get out. It is heavy handed. It hits you over the head over and over yeah. with the idea that Shaman is trying to communicate. But it's weird because despite him trying to communicate these ideas, it's not clear about how he actually feels about it because he sends mixed messages throughout the film. Right. Um, and, I, and some of it I can't talk about into, to spoilers, but at the end of this movie, I walked away thinking, what was he trying to get at with this other than to lecture us about superheroes and uh, lecture us in a way that I don't feel like uh, it certainly doesn't add anything new tells me things i already know and tells me things i already know in a very sort of cynical light it's, it's not only did it not meet expectations but i think the last act of this movie is a train wreck <laughs> right no, no pun intended <laughs> and for how appropriate to end a film the east rail 117 177 trilogy with, with, with the train wreck yeah I, I seriously that was no pun intended guys i promise i didn't plan that <laughs> well it's weird for the other two films and i think i would I, unbreakable more so split Still as well, you were describing, Caleb, a little bit prior that that in a way they are kind of experiments and they catch you off guard. And that's a very satisfying feeling, whereas Glass, it 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 plays it safe, quite possibly in the worst possible way. I would have probably been more OK with just a Shyamalan experiment that failed rather than than what Glass is. Right, right. So we've we've talked about things we don't like. We're going to go really in-depth in the spoilers. Despite me not liking the movie, I strongly don't like this movie. I think the, the, the ending of this movie is a glorious, uh, spectacular misfire. But I will give Shyamalan this. It's spectacular. I mean, right. it's it, 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 it goes all out and what it's doing. It's just what it's doing is kind of a mess. So I have to give him credit. Uh, and admittedly, this entire thing was very ambitious because he was mm -hmm. combining two different universe like it was a sequel to two different movies really mm -hmm. and so that inherently is ambitious but the I thing is he couldn't settle for just doing that he had to put his own twist on it and this movie the end of this movie man he throws at least a minimum of three twists at you and only one of them i think is remotely earned and the other two feel like what are you doing this why is this you, why are you putting this at the very end of the movie? Yeah, it's really it's it's not it's not like whoa. It's more confusing than it is mind blowing. It's not just one. It happens three times. Well, yeah, and that's weird that he didn't like seem to learn his lesson because the one I know the village isn't isn't lauded. I don't even think it's that great. But that film actually paces its twists well throughout the film in a way that I think at least at least works in some way for that and and to not have that here just for it to be rushed and really just hit you over the head you are aware of what what i guess the twist is but there's so many that it's like you you just become completely desensitized and i didn't think that could happen over the course of 20 minutes or less it's not like he he doesn't space these twists out he saves yeah. it all for the very end of the movie yeah and um i just i i there was only one of them that i found remotely satisfying or earned you know in my mind my in my opinion mm -hmm. a great twist is one that the seeds are planted throughout the film, or in this case, you could even say throughout the trilogy if you want to go that far. 
And then when you watch it, you're like, whoa, signs. I some people f- find it obnoxious. I think it's a great twist. A lot yeah. of visual cues. There's water everywhere, and they tie. And at the end of the movie, it ends up being a, a key thing. You're like, oh, and it ties into the idea that that Shyamalan is trying to communicate about faith, uh, the, the nature of faith and belief, and and it all come. It really comes together in a really spectacular, in my opinion, a very spectacular yeah. conclusion that is satisfying. And it's not bearing the lead when, when you see it. When you look back, at it, you're like, oh, cool. I see why all this stuff is happening. This movie. There's only one of them that I feel like is remotely set up in any way. Yeah, it's not one of those. Th- I know some people with like television series too, like maybe maybe Westworld is among them. That that it it's it like people say, well, you just watch it again, and then suddenly you, things makes more sense. Uh, yeah, that's fine, but you still have to get some indication. Well, that's why Westworld season one is way better than Westworld exactly. season two. Yeah, but that, I, that's another conversation. That's what I mean. Sorry, Westworld season one I've watched thrice. Uh, I've only watched season two once for good reason. But but that's the thing. You you get the indication. Of a twist. Like, you know, something's not right. Split, I think, is actually a good a good example of that. Unbreakable, despite knowing what it was a part of when I was watching it this past month for the first time, it still was satisfying in that twist ending. Um, and partially because there were remnants of, of something not quite the way it seems. You can't just have a twist ending that's there. That's that's the joke of Shyamalan, really, is to have it like, what, like a random twist that doesn't make uh, <laughs> like and not to say it doesn't make sense, but it, it doesn't. It's not earned, I guess. Yeah. Like like you're saying, bearing the lead. It's not it's not earned. It's not alluded to. And it's not and ultimately it's just not like executed well. One it feels sloppy. It feels like you're throwing stuff in specifically to to outsmart the audience, but it's a really, really lazy way to do that because there's no way the audience could have and we're gonna talk about in spoilers, but there's a moment where one of these twists happens where I was I wasn't wow, that was that was crazy. It was more like what is this what's going on and it does that a couple times but i do want to say there are things i like about this movie yeah sorry i usually try to start with the positive and go to the negative but we we just jumped right into the negative um (laughs) it's an open face it it has uh firstly i think the first act for this film is actually very strong i i was on board for the first act uh um where they're kind of setting the stage reintroducing the characters showing us where they're at um getting all everything on the chessboard in play and then they just dump the whole chess before they even start the match they just dump the whole chessboard over um which again that's you know i i, I saw that and i was like okay okay i will i'll i'll, I'll give this the benefit of the doubt that's no big deal shaman yeah. wants to do something different and i'm all about different stuff in superhero movies so cool i think james mcavoy his uh his performance stellar he i mean he just he's going for it man yeah and he's i i going wonder, for it and, so hard and and I'm gonna, i love it yeah love and it. i'm gonna i'm gonna fall on the side that james mcavoy is 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 a good performer i i did wonder watching maybe split in this film i'm like does his performances just stand out in comparison and i don't think that's true actually thinking about it a bit more james mcavoy is incredible um the, the personas thing you would think that would be a very tired you know his his multiple alters well it's the way he's able to transition from yeah. persona to persona seamlessly and they're very distinct too mm-hmm. they don't really share much of anything and that that seems hard to do so i like that although i thought uh, big disappointment on my end I, I thought that definitely bruce willis and i think samuel a lot of people are giving samuel jackson applause for this one i and daniel i want to see what you think i actually thought he was kind of phony i thought i thought both samuel jackson and bruce willis were phoning it in pretty hard bruce willis for certain I I like the the I mean you'll you'll see there are basically two different modes of of Samuel Jackson's character Elijah in this film and 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 it was I I I would lie to say if I didn't enjoy seeing how he is is essentially introduced in this film 
and then how that cascades into something different without getting into into spoilers. Um, uh, oh, also, it's a movie called Glass, and he doesn't show up until about halfway through. Exactly, and and I. I don't know. I, I guess that kind of worked for me, but I don't think it's, it's maybe it's just maybe the, that particular character is written in in a, in a way that I thought was was interesting and, and enticing. But um, it, it doesn't it again, it doesn't work towards anything that's very fulfilling. But again, I can't I don't know if I can say Samuel Jackson is doing a, in a very great job in 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 that. Um, but Bruce Willis, for certain, he he did not seem particularly interested in this at all, which is weird because he seemed to be a, at one point he, I felt like he may have been a cohort of, of Shyamalan through Sixth Sense and Unbreakable and playing these films that are in a way break the grain of what, mm-hmm. you know, Roger Ebert basically in his review of, uh, of Unbreakable would make that, you know, you take this big kind of this, this epitome of machismo, which is Bruce Willis through Die Hard and, and other films, and then put him in a frame that's different than that. And I do think Sixth Sense does that more so, uh, excuse me, Unbreakable, uh, and then for this film, it just seems like he was not having it. He was not interested in revitalizing that. But then again, I, I don't know. He didn't really have much to work with. Either, I, I, so. well, yeah, you know, that's fair. He actually, uh, weirdly, he's probably the least written of the three characters. Exactly. So, you know, that, that's a fair point. I, I have to I have to consider that. And the other thing I liked was it does a really cool thing where they incorporated scenes that were not used and unbreakable into this film. And it looked really well. It looked looked really good. In fact, so good that I was like, "Oh man, Unbreakable looked a lot better <laughs> than Glass did." Yeah, like uh, just again the way the the, the the shots were framed and uh, the atmosphere of uh, Unbreakable that I thought just top notch was mm-hmm. was not present uh, at all in this movie. And in fact, the one thing about Unbreakable that's great is the really long. They just the camera just lingers on stuff and holds it. Unbreakable, I think you know, incorporating that. St- that idea into the way the the movie was shot. This movie, the editing, especially in the last third, the editing on this movie is bad, which bad, is weird bad, because bad. even Split, like with its symmetry, and it's I'm not that film had moments of of a very interesting cinema, you know, cinematography, interesting choices of frame, and this film did not. It kind of again, it fell. It does the thing that I kind of am really reluctant to enjoy about. Um, a lot of like, uh, I'm just gonna like modern superhero films, uh, action choreography, for instance, it's right. quick cuts. Every time there's impact, every time there's something, it's usually cutting away. Very few things do that with exception. I would say maybe the, the, the first season of daredevils, uh, Netflix series does, it makes you linger on impact. And the thing is these, these characters, they're not the Hulk. They're not Thor. They're not Iron Man. They're, they're closer to to normal they're still exceptional but they're closer to that and to see them basically the 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 choreography the fight scene choreography what what is in the film to be see it kind of implemented in a way that's not you know it is more akin to like modern action films i just feel like you you he sabotaged his own criticism like his own argument was sabotaged in that like he wasn't aware of this was something with the lingering shots of unbreakable with the 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 moments of hardship you see with unbreakable to see those not to see that not carry over into this film it, it just seems weird to me and and it doesn't work uh you know it's it's like uh, the the real joke about about M. Night Shyamalan is he's he's like uh, Kevin Wendell Crumb you never know which version of him's going right. to which version of him is going to be directing the movie cuz some that's what I'm saying he's 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 got movies where he's, he does accept really cool smart exceptional yeah. things and he's got other movies where it's like dude are you hearing yourself talk are you hearing yourself like are you reading your own scripts like you Bit know of an echo chamber uh, yeah and and I cuz I I just think that 
I mean, he goes back again at the end of this movie. He goes, he goes all the way back to like the joke about, oh, what a twist! Like, just, there's three twists, and they're really yeah. obnoxious. Oh, I'm the and, twist guy, huh? And, and, oh, and no, and here's what's here's what's annoying, Daniel. I don't want to spoil it, but at one point, one of the characters says, "Oh, you see, we thought we were watching. We were, you, we thought we were, we were in a blank, but actually, we're in a blank." I was like, "Are you freaking kidding me? You wrote that into the script, so obviously, you know what you're doing. I, it seems like you know what you're doing, but you don't because you just failed to pull off the thing you're doing. It's, it's, I don't. It's just a mess. We all want, yeah. And and with these last few years, this seemed like the film where it was like." Shyamalan is going to be actualized. He's going to be aware of himself, and 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 there is a moment um, that we'll talk a little bit more in the, the spoilers of this film, where somebody says something, and then it, it like I got this flood of anxiety watching it, where I was like, oh my god, no, he doesn't. Like he 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 is not actualized. Yeah. It was like that moment, which which, which happens is pretty, fairly early. It's, it's pretty early in the movie. Pretty too, early yeah. in the yeah, film. I, I know I'm what, like, I know what you're talking about. Yeah, this is not, and it's. <laughs> It's like it's like too good to be true, and and unfortunately it is. Those are our reviews of Glass. We're going to get into spoilers in one moment, but first, Daniel, how would we recommend this film to the people, the listeners out there, and uh, for our listeners who are maybe tuning in for the first time? So uh, our rating, our recommendation system is not number based, but we do more recommendation. So is this film so great that not only do you see this movie in prime time, you go out and buy it on Blu-ray or digitally or whatever the best way you can buy it at mm-hmm. uh, is this a full price film. And when I say full price, I'm talking full price, prime time, VIP seating, dinner and a movie. You know, is it, is it that quality? Mm-hmm. Is this a matinee? Self-explanatory. Uh, is this one that you just wait until it hits the stream? Uh, Netflix, Amazon, whatever the case may be. Or is this totally just trash? Mm-hmm. Daniel, how's your, what, what, how would you recommend people watch this film? S- stream it. I guess for sure. It's not, it's not the worst. We, we went over, there are some redeeming qual- weird how we came back to like the negative <laughs> stuff. I guess it persists. <laughs> we, really? We talked about the negatives. We talked about the positives for a minute and then we and went we back, to, back the to the negatives, <laughs> but uh, I would say stream it. I, I understand that a lot of people have been waiting for this film and they want to see how it concludes that it will likely go see it in theaters. I think this film is probably commercially going to be, Oh, it's going to be a hit. It's already projected to make over $100 million this week. Exactly. Yeah. So it, it's going to be a hit. Um, if you have to do that, then do a matinee. For me, though, I I, I kind of wish I could have just streamed it. Uh, yeah, Daniel, I'm going to echo that. I think streaming that, this is the most ideal way to do it. Because here's the thing. I, I, I don't even think it's not... There's not really much spectacle in it. There's a couple of scenes where you get some cool fights. So this is not a spectacle piece that, oh man, you have to see it on the big screen. I, I think you could just as well watch this on your couch at home. And I don't think it's so good that you need to rush out and see it. And I don't think that the, I don't think that the twists are bland well enough or do anything cool enough for you to like need to see it before people tell you about it. Cause I don't, I don't really think the twists are impactful in any, yeah. in any sort of way. So I don't think there's any reason you need to rush out and see it. Just one question to, to, to quantify maybe that recommendation a little bit more, I think maybe to, to, to frame it. If, if you are going to see glass in some form or another, eventually Caleb, since I think your experience is a little bit better suited for this, should you rewatch unbreakable and split like, in anticipation of, of, of watching glass immediately. Is that, is that, could you possibly enhance the experience that is glass by not watching these films? It won't enhance 
the movie, but maybe you'll forget how good the other two are in comparison to this one. So by so by watching this one without comparing it to those other two, maybe you'll appreciate it more that way. But the other two are because the other two are far superior. I also think that you should rewatch them because there's a lot of stuff you forget about those early films that are great. And I think yeah. if there's any, the most value I've taken uh, out of this movie coming out is that I, it got me to rewatch Unbreakable for the first time in 10 years. Despite me not thinking it holds up super well, I still love it. So, you know, that's been the best thing coming out of this movie is that I rewatched a movie I liked much better that is still a far superior film than Glass. Uh, Glass is a huge disappointment, but I think if you have invested in the other two, you really should see how it concludes, even if the way it concludes is a giant disaster and a way in what I, what I would consider one of M. Night Shyamalan's most wasted opportunities. Uh, so that'll be it. Uh, we're both saying uh, if you're invested, yeah, stream it. If you haven't seen the other two movies, though, don't just don't even can, just right. watch Unbreakable, watch Split. You really don't need to don't watch Don't let this. your friend who's a big fan uh, or your significant other talk you into going to see it. If you have no preface, fight them, in fact. <laughs> fight them. Maybe not physically. For, for the world to see, for the whole world to <laughs> yeah. see, to reveal that you two are actually fighters. Okay, uh, so let's go ahead and get to spoilers, Daniel. So if you have not seen Glass and do not want to be spoiled on the film, go ahead and step out now. M. Night in the pantry! God, I just want to borrow a cup of sugar. What a twist. Let's just jump into the last act of this movie. All right. We need to keep this short because otherwise we'll be here all day. Yeah. There's three twists. We're going to go down the line. Okay. But I just want to state that this is this last act. I was on board for the first act. I thought the second act was not great, but also I was like, but, but I was like, okay, cool. It's, it's going somewhere. So yeah. I am, I'm here for it. I'm on board. It was kind of boring. And anytime James McAvoy wasn't in the frame, I was kind of bored, honestly. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, um, but I was like, I'm here for it. I'm, I'm down. Let's, let's get there. Third act comes off. And not only did it not pay off the second act, but I was like, wow, this is a disaster. And it's a disaster because Samuel Jackson. Just think about this: the last act of this movie is a bunch of people standing around in a courtyard yelling exposition at each other yeah. while two people are like, "It wasn't it weird." Like, like Bruce Willis and, and James McAvoy are over here fighting, and then on the sidelines and Samuel Jackson laughing and and like saying, "Oh, and this is the part where the twist comes in." I was like, "What? What? What is?" And yeah. I, I roll my eyes so hard when he's like, "And look, the supporting characters have arrived." I was like, "Oh God, this is I." What, Didn't he do that a little bit in Unbreakable, though? And it, like, worked, but it was because it was... Yeah, it, it, well, it, he did do that in Unbreakable a little bit. Uh, it wasn't quite as bad as, oh, yeah. and the supporting characters have arrived to this climactic scene. That's true. Um, but he did <laughs> do that a little that bit. Actually a and lot. that is actually part of the thing, one of the things I don't think held up about Unbreakable super well. Some of it does, some of it doesn't. Some of it, I thought the, the, the ending where he's kind of, like, laying it out, I thought works it emotionally just works really well. Other parts of Unbreakable, not so much. But man, he is doing that here cranked up to a 25. Imagine a jackass skit where like the the, the bit is they're on a uh, they're on like a pile of carpets or rugs and each like subsequent member of jackass, be it Steve-O, whoever, they're all pulling the rugs out from one uh, under one another and then falling off. And, And it happened in like the course of like. I, I think it was even, I think I said 20 minutes or less. I think it was less. It was it's probably like 15, 10 to 15 minutes. 10 to 15 it's not minutes. very much. It's, yeah. it's a lot of stuff that happens. I could see <laughs> in the performers on screen, I feel like I could see the the doubt in Shyamalan, like material, like especially the, and I, 
I, I apologize, I don't know the actor's name, but who played Elijah Price's mother. I could see. Oh, and and I thought David Dunn's son too. Too. It, it I was like both of them were like, like what this. This is on? just the dumbest shit. But whatever, I'm here. <laughs> sure. And it's edited in a way that it's so confusing. I couldn't. There was no sense of where everyone was actually standing at. Like it was. It was a mess. So from a set, pure set piece like climax, I had no idea what was going on. I, and that's where I was kind of like, this is going off the rails. Okay. And then what stops the fight? Samuel L. Jackson rolls over and he's like, the bees kill him. And then all of a sudden, David Dunn's kid shows, walks out and says, no, 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 you don't know the truth. And then, and then the beast is like, what? And Samuel L. Jackson's like, no, you can't tell him yet. And then he's like, your dad was on that train. <laughs> the, the twist is that basically Kevin Wendell's crumb, his dad, who was a loving figure in his life, right. uh, dies on the same, on the train crash that uh, David Dunn was on and survived. And uh, left uh, Kevin Wendell Crumb with his abusive mo- mother, who is what created the the multiple personalities. Exactly. I actually think that that was the twist. I was like, okay, that's were, a, that one you felt yeah. was earned, right? Right. Well, because they and, and it was alluded to, like in Split, you see the right before uh, uh, he, the the horde turns into the and, beast, you see him like go to the train and lay down flowers, but you don't really know what. Th- this why. is so weird. Yeah, and this is so weird. I thought I didn't know that was actually like I know it was supposed to be kind of a twist. When I realized it as it appeared in glass, I'm like, oh, that was a twist. I guess I just assumed that would have been the way they were related was like because they do in splits. Hey, his dad is out of the picture abruptly. Something I thought they said he he died. Maybe, maybe this is after seeing glass. I'm, I'm starting to put things into split that weren't there. But either way, I knew it involved a train. I knew his dad was gone. The the whole thing is about a train really is 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 catalyzed by a train accident. So I just assumed that was it. So I guess that that didn't. Um, not to say I had any like additional insight. I just thought like I, I guess that felt like something that I knew. It, it was, was less. It was less a twist. Okay, like, you know what? That's a good point. It's less a twist and more of a reveal that I found satisfying because okay. I felt like the breadcrumbs have been laid out. And again, more with the, the the puns, the bread, yeah. breadcrumbs. Um, but, but the breadcrumbs have been laid out. Yeah, I felt like it was, I, it was I, a key moment for him to know that. Yeah, of course, right. I just think Elijah that so it. I thought it was cool the way they, they did it. It was really cool because it was a flashback and you see his dad get on the train and they actually mm-hmm. interweave that with some footage of the, the very first shot of Unbreakable. And I thought it was really cool the way they were able to integrate that footage together. Awesome. Loved it. But my problem with this twist or reveal or whatever we want to call it is that why is David Dunn's kid showing up and telling him that it's it's really like in a climactic moment. It feels really weird and cheap the way I, I think it's most effective when reveals like that happen is when the character somehow discovers himself whenever someone it's it, it felt like deus ex machina is what it felt like because that's what also that shifted the, the 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 focus of the entire fight on to destroy Mr. Glass mm-hmm. and it just felt really weird and kind of lazy and de- again deus ex machina that oh my god i have this key information that i'm just going to shout at him and it's going to turn the tide of the fight i think it would have been more meaningful if kevin wendell crumb had or the beast had discovered this in another way yeah because uh, i thought the Absolutely. reveal the reveal itself was cool it's just the way it was done i was like okay so but you didn't even think it was that big of a revelation but no it, it didn't feel like a, a payoff i felt like it was probably a moment that had to happen but i again i I guess it didn't again yeah i don't don't know if that's the it it is a twist i guess a a twist or reveal i don't know i guess how we want to frame i thought i i was set i found that the information satisfying i thought the delivery was was terrible so i rolled my eyes a little bit i was like roll i simultaneously roll my eyes but like deep down i was like oh that feels good that's that's how this is how you listen you set something up and you pay it off cool good job Shyamalan. yeah um and uh so that was cool 
or whatever. It was what it was. But here's where I just like, I mean, firstly, after the whole set piece is a mess <laughs> that happens, I roll my eyes, but no, it doesn't stop. Then David Dunn's laying on the ground and some random dude starts shoving his head in the water. We think he's a SWAT guy, but he's apparently not. And then the camera zooms in on his forearm and you see a little tattoo of a, a was it three, a three leaf clover, a three leaf clover. Now here's what's weird about this. We had no context for what this three leaf clover, but the way the camera and the story was oogling on it was like that was a reveal, except for it wasn't because we didn't know what it meant. So we see this dude killing David Dunn. He's another party, and then we also see another dude with a four a three leaf clover uh, after Anya Taylor Joy has calmed down. Uh, the beast and made him go back to his normal state. Some other dude on a van with a similar tattoo takes out Kevin Wendell crumb. And I'm like, okay, what the heck's up with this tattoo? Why is the bit, why are they treating it like it? That's what I'm saying. The film treats it like it's a twist that these guys are doing this. But the problem is we have no idea what that clover means. And then we find out, Oh, the psychiatrist is part of a secret society that is dedicated to shutting down and keeping superheroes from exposing themselves. It it tried to create the moment, which, which, Seeing Unbreakable later, this twi- the twist ending of that film with the reveal of um, of Mr. Glass, essentially, that Elijah Price is a criminal mastermind who's also a um, prolific terrorist. That that still worked, seeing it. Like, I wasn't aware of that, actually, when I saw it. I, I knew there was some indication that there was going to be a... Um, that, but that, despite you knowing that, uh, kind of knowing the about the film, but you didn't know the that. The twist was still very satisfying, and it worked, and it was supposed to be, I think, a recreation of that moment, and it just did not. Well, it didn't because there was, this is one of those where I was talking about my review. This came out of nowhere. There was no indication yeah. anywhere in, in this film or the previous films of this secret society who is actively trying to keep superpowered people from revealing themselves. Just, yeah. Something that annoyed me about the second act mm-hmm was how the psychiatrist was trying to basically gaslight them into thinking they actually didn't have superpowers. Now, I right. think you uh, you liked that a little more than I did. I, think. I, I kind of did. I get there. Well, okay. I do and I don't. The big One of the big problems with Shyamalan um, consistently, and I think it, it just comes up here in, in a way that he's not very self-aware of, of some of his more problematic aspects. We're talking about... Uh, not on the podcast, but prior Tarantino at one point and some of the weird things that he, he tends to do and some of the, the bad parts of himself that he leans into. I think one of Shyamalan's is, is he's, he's a bit of an ableist. Like he, he really, if you are a person with a disability in his films, you're not going to be framed very well. But then he also just the, the, the institution of trying to help these people, which is, is yeah, in real life, it's a little bit problematic, but at this point it's like, Oh, well, you're not agreeable to us. We're going to lobotomize you. And like, that was an actual thing, right? It was like a, I know it was like a different operation, but it was the equivalent of a, yeah. a lobotomy. Was yeah, the yeah. Option of that film. It was and like, take opted, out part of his brain. Opted for that. What I do like, and I, what I think was working in the moments where it instills doubt, which might be, um, you know, a, a bit of a, uh, uh, an opening for, for what a lot of these films are about, which is like, you know, vulnerability is that, yeah, these characters, they have really weird quirks and they do have uncanny abilities, but they're not so crazy, seemingly. Like, there's a way you can frame them to where there is doubt is is available. It's not like, again, we were talking about, like, Thor and the Incredible Hulk and, and all these other superheroes that we're accustomed to in films. They are, like, like, like obviously, they're exceptional. You're not going to argue that, that they aren't in any way. Uh, but here, you, I feel like the argument is still a little bit available. And Shyamalan plays with that deliberately. Right. Um, and that's what I like about Split. That's what I like about Unbreakable. And that's what I like about parts of this film. 
Um, but it also just didn't. It could have been executed way well, and and he didn't well, ha- he didn't have to like basically reiterate his own misunderstanding of an institution and a misunderstanding of a point part of society to to get there either. I, well, and that was one of the criticisms that uh, Split actually received from uh, you know. Um, that was actually some some of the criticisms that he received him on Split was, hey, you're misrepresenting people with multiple personality disorders. Exactly. Which the only reason I kind of gave that a pass, because normally I would not be a fan of that, was because it was in his own little superhero universe. Again, watching it the first time, I was like, this is kind of problematic because I thought it was a psychological thriller. I, I gave it a pass. I gave it a buy because it's a superhero universe, which makes that not acceptable, but maybe in that weird universe he's created, that's how it does work. The problem is he's all about trying to root all of this in reality that we do live in. Exactly. And I think it, it really fails here. Um, I personally found it annoying that the whole second act was about trying to instill doubt because as the audience, again, this is me having almost 20 years of history with it. Mm. I have already accepted that they have superpowers and two different movies. So it feels weird, but I've had like also like years to simmer on it versus That's you who've had like yeah. a month. And, uh, uh, you know, and I was even watching when I was rewatching Unbreakable, I was watching it with someone who hadn't seen it before and they were even like, uh, their superpowers aren't really that super. And I was to your point. Mm-hmm. Um, so for me, it was frustrating because I felt like, wait, you're trying to tell us that this thing that you've already established in your previous two movies is a lie. This is really weird and seems kind of counterproductive. Um, but again, I was kind of on board either way. Second act frustrated me because of that. So the psychiatrist, though, was actually part of a secret organization that was trying to suppress superheroes for or people with uh, with these abilities to reveal themselves to the world. Right. And it didn't work for me. It didn't work for me at all because it came out of nowhere. There was no foreshadowing. There was no um, I mean, the idea that the psychiatrist was trying to suppress them was there, but it definitely it never seemed it never came across as like even remotely malicious or um, and there was no hint at this organization who is who is working uh, against our our protagonists, mm-hmm. and it felt tacked on, thrown in and tacked on. That's a cool idea. Yeah, that is a cool idea. It's one of several cool ideas this movie has that does it. But again, it's undercooked. Like it, it's undercooked. I don't really know what he's trying to say by including that secret organization into the the film. I don't know. It, it's it's not worked well, into. It's not even in the, in the context of this film. There's no foreshadowing that that this exists. Uh, so it just, it cool idea that you, I just feel like you just tossed it in there. It, you know, and it feels like it, it just, you're smashing ideas together and there's no, it, they don't work together at all. Yeah. It's just really hard for me to believe that if he truly stewed on this conclusion for almost 20 years, 19 years in the making, I think is the, it, it this is it. Like I, I don't, I, I, maybe anything would fail, but I don't believe that. I think there are, perhaps ways to execute this that would have been a little bit more satisfying at the very least that idea like you said it is neat it's not a bad idea um because what is the what is the antithesis to exception uh, an exception a four leaf a three leaf clover to a right. four leaf clover that's a cool symbol in of itself too it, it just never was implemented and it, it he, he can't you know you can't retcon your own film within itself and expect it to work and and i don't know yeah so that didn't work for us. The last one, though, and here's where it gets. So that's one oh, yeah. layer. That's one layer of frustration. So, so the other layer of frustration is that oh, but apparently Mr. Glass did know that there was a secret society who was trying to work against his uh, goal to get the message out about super powered individuals. He tricked them into putting cameras up throughout this uh, facility so they right. could watch everything he does, and. 
um, his whole goal was for what happened to be exactly what happened. He it played out exactly as he wanted it to, uh, yeah. uh, so that that the video footage of this fight could get released into the world, um, compile compi- with along with one of his monologues about superpowered individuals. Mm-hmm. That was obnoxious because that. So, firstly, it was obnoxious because it. I didn't buy the secret society thing. And this was a twist on top of that. So it, it, the movie assumes I bought that. So now for me to even buy this one, I have to buy that one. So yeah. firstly, inherently, it's hard but uh, for me to buy that. But on top of that, it kind of gives Mr. G- I know his, his intelligence is a big part of what makes his character super, mm-hmm. or I guess. But it, it, it gives him it makes him basically this omniscient guy who knew it was going on everywhere at all times. And even though he's been in the, this facility for years and years and years, I just have a hard time buying it. I also think that it is the film assumes that his goals are noble and and, and good. Like the the end game here, the part that I find especially most frustrating is that it, the movie re, it kind of pivots at some point. I'm trying to pinpoint exactly when it does because for the first act of the film, David Dunn's basically your your protagonist, and right. the second act it gets kind of muddled. Kind of Kevin Wendell Crumb, I would say, or Mr. Glass, they kind of share the protagonist thing. And the third act is just okay. No, it is Mr. Glass as the protagonist. When I say protagonist, I don't mean your main character. I mean the 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 lens in which you're you're viewing the, whose story is this. And the movie is called Glass, so that would make sense. So it makes sense to me. Like his his goals getting out. His goal for the whole time is for people, the world, to know that super exceptional, super powered individuals exist. Okay, so that's his goal. So. From that sense, it does the ending makes does match up. Right. But my problem is the the beginning of this movie does not set that up at all, and I don't care. I don't know why his goal actually. I don't know how his goal actually enhances or makes the world better at all. Like the movie concludes, and it's like they it's like a celebratory thing that basically they're they're dead relatives. So so his mom, uh, David Dunn's son, and then Anya Taylor Joy who. Uh, care deeply for Kevin Wendell Crumb all leak this information out everywhere yeah. and that's it's framed like it's a good thing but I don't really understand why it's a good thing other than that it's what Mr. Glass wanted I don't know how that actually makes the world better in any way or no yeah because he like goes against an argument he has st- which which okay people can change and your arguments will change I just don't think if you've made the argument because Unbreakable conclude I feel at least in the conclusion that yeah David Dunn realizes that he is an exceptional being but the end, the ends do not justify the means. I guess is is that okay? But I I would rather not be if it took this Mister Glass blowing up buildings, crashing planes, wrecking a train, and killing hundreds upon thousands of people to to do that. Yet this almost validates that, right? Yeah, yeah no, like, that's, that's what I'm saying. It yeah, does. it and validates it, all exactly. the terrible and, things and he's done as a you, good thing. Exactly, and you wouldn't think that would be the conclusion. You you wouldn't think that would be, like, he almost justifies it as a necessary mean. And I'm like, that, that wouldn't be the argument I think I would change. If that was one of your... It, 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 the argument ultimately comes down, I mean, based on, I don't know if he's intentionally saying this, but based on what is in the film, film it yeah. seems like he's saying... Yes, the mean the means of doing evil, harmful things to people justifies his goal to get the world to see that these uh, uh, superpowered, exceptional individuals exist. And I do. Firstly, that's I think that's actually a super upsetting message. I think that's that's a very not great way to look at the world. That's subjective. I get that, but also it's frustrating because David Dunn is the hero for the first act, so it feels weird that. And his whole goal is just to keep people safe. He doesn't really care about any of Elijah's goals. 
Um, so it feels weird though that we're rooting for him, but at the end of the day, we're supposed to root for Glass, who is his arch nemesis, who who, who it's weird who that he that was gets trying, fi- who he was trying to stop. Yeah, and it's weird that he gets the final say because I mean, Unbreakable makes a good point that you can be an exceptional, like an exceptional person, but the the limelight is not of exception. You shouldn't. You should do these things out of altruism, not because you're going to be known. And that's kind of the point, I think, one of the final moments of Unbreakable when he, you know, when the uh, Joseph is reading the newspaper and he notices like, oh, the overseer. And then it's like, oh, that's my dad. And David is like, don't let's not tell anyone. And that's good. And, and that's the point. You know, where there is going to be an exceptional being that can do good. But if he were to just accept himself as that and show himself off to the world and be like, yeah, I'm this this great guy and I'm going to go on hot ones and talk about it um why like it, it defeats the purpose right and in this film defeated its own purpose in a lot of ways it it, it just echoes and in, in something i wish i kind of maybe said prior um to this in our spoiler free section is one of the worst parts of Shyamalan that he has never escaped regardless of whether or not he has made a good film or a terrible film at the end of the day with this film i think in this what makes it the 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 deepest cut and the harshest sting is that he doesn't trust his audience. Not one bit. At all. Like, he he really... Everything... I mean, that's the thing. It's the... This, this, the end of this film demonstrates the worst aspects of him. I exactly. felt like I was getting lectured. But I was getting lectured... It, it actually felt less like a lecture. I was being ranted at. Because it, the ideas yeah. he's... Like, Mr. Glass is like... And these characters are like espousing and arguing about never like they don't align in any way they don't say i don't think they add anything to the conversation and they send different messages it's very mixed i don't know i don't know what i'm supposed to walk away from this film thinking is a good or bad thing i honestly don't we don't know m night Shyamalan personally so i'm not going to make any personal judgments but in his art we have seen patterns over and over again of things he does that are destructive to the ideas he's trying to communicate and uh, make assumptions about the audience and uh, him. He also has quite a reputation for being in his earlier days being very full of himself. Right. So for him to like get up in his movie and say, look at me, I have straightened my stuff out. I am back in form because I'm positive. I'm like, dude, I don't know. You, you did this exact same thing in your earlier films. I mean, it, it manifested. You said different things, but you, the fact that you write yourself into a film anyway, just as inherently, yeah. ego centric and 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 I, I you know if he had really you know turned a corner how about just not being in don't write yourself into the film at all don't make your cameo like it like you said let action speak louder than words i don't need you to tell me in your in your own movie hey look i've got stuff figured out look at me i would rather you just deliver a competent film to say that and right. then i could take i could i could i could yeah. uh no no one's waiting for the like here's the thing okay you're not marvel stuff stanley being inserted into like marvel films and stuff like that people kind of like that and they and they might come in to expect it no one i don't know anyone who is like man i can't wait for the Shyamalan cameo in any of his films i have never heard anyone just like well, i can't wait it's like you know he's going to be there like everyone's aware he's like the anti stanley <laughs> exactly like i am never looking forward to seeing Shyamalan. when i was watching split i for the first time unbreakable i knew he's probably going to be in there it's so early in his career it wasn't that at that time you were well and he it. actually i will say his 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 cameos in his earlier films were way less obnoxious than they they became we need, we need to wrap this up but i just i'm gonna leave off on this note okay avatar the last airbender is one of my favorite animated programs ever. Uh, and I actually didn't watch it until I was like in college. So it's, I mean like it's, it's still, it's been a few years, but yeah. I didn't, 
I don't have like childhood nostalgia of watching that show. Me neither. I watched it later. I, I, I watched it, it later, and I, I think it's a fantastic piece of uh, of uh, fiction, uh, fantasy fiction that is up there. I, I seriously, I, I have no problem saying this up there with Lord of the Rings or or Star Wars or Harry Potter. Like, I think it is that good. I, I think it deserves more credit and in, in popularity. But I mean, I think fans of that know how great that show is. And that Shyamalan made a movie so bad and so offensive that it actually put a bad taste in my mouth that made me made me appreciate the show less. Even though I think the show is still incredible. I think uh, The Legend of Korra is also great. Mm-hmm. What he does in Glass is the same thing. Yeah. I mean, Glass is undoubtedly better than The Last Airbender. It is much better. It's more realized, but it's still a disaster. It is a disaster that for me, I'm closing the book. I'm very bitter, uh, and it makes me want to revisit Unbreakable less. And I don't know if I'll ever be able to watch Unbreakable in the same way again without having that like, ugh, man, this is a great movie. It's kind of like whenever I watch X-Men 2, uh, and I'm like, X-Men 2, God, this is a... This is a very underappreciated superhero movie that I think is one of the best ever made. And then, but then I remember, but X Men Three comes next. You yeah. know, it's one of those where you appreciate it less because you know what's going to come next, and what comes next is so bad that it actually takes away from the setup and the great writing and the groundwork that they had laid in the earlier films. So what I'm saying is, Glass did for Unbreakable what The Last Airbender did for the animated, the actual program that uh, Avatar The Last Airbender for me. And that, my friends, in my book is unforgivable. So there, there you have it. I really, really don't like this movie. All right, Daniel. Well, uh, we're going to go ahead and close out. Where can people keep up with their work online uh, until our next episode? Well, of course, you can find me on the Cinematropolis, especially now this past month, a lot of work on Shyamalan, uh, but also a ton of other pieces there as well uh you can also find me uh periodically contributing for the oklahoma gazette as well as world literature today uh on twitter and facebook uh bo camper uh as i say just spell the best you can and, and you will find me there's not too many of us so all right and you, of course you can always find me on twitter tweeting about you know films uh tv video games all the great pop culture stuff at c masters talk that's letter c masters talk and you can keep up with all of our work here on the cinematic schematic uh, and the essays we write on the cinematropolis at the cinematropolis.com or on facebook at facebook.com forward slash the cinematropolis or on twitter and instagram at the cinematrop next month we're gonna be taking a look at stop motion animation and it's uh, oscar season so we're gonna be doing a lot of oscar talk so make sure to tune in then And the twists don't stop coming now. Make sure to stay tuned because when we return, Alexandra will talk with us about the many different collaborations between M. Night Shyamalan and the iconic film composer James Newton Howard.
Hello, everyone, and welcome to Soundtrack, your friendly neighborhood film music podcast on the Cinematic Schematic, brought to you by thecinematropolis.com. My name's Alexander Bohannon, and I'm the host of Soundtrack and your guide and curator for this segment. But as always, I'm not alone. Joining me in our official podcasting studio, sir, will you introduce yourself? You thought... I was going to be your co-host, but I'm actually a ghost. What a twist. <laughs> yeah, hi, I'm Caleb Masters. Uh, the, the, the real twist is there's not even a ghost. It's, it actually is me. Just, oh, just, just your host. It's a retwist. Your co-host on the cinematic schematic, Caleb Masters. Hey, Alex. Hey. I'm super excited to talk with you about some Shyamalan scores. That's right. This glorious month of January, we're talking about M. Night Shyamalan films. If you couldn't already assess that from our first track. We, of course, are celebrating all things M. Night Shyamalan and Twisty because of the uh, release of Glass, the final movie in the East Rail 177 trilogy. Of course, that started with Unbreakable and then the sleeper entry split uh, two years ago. And then, of course, uh, Glass just basically came out. At the top of the show, we lead in with the track Malcolm is Dead from the 1999 M. Night Shyamalan classic and masterpiece. I would I would say love that. Oh my God. It's called the, the track title is Malcolm is Dead. The track title is Malcolm is Dead. I really hope no one <laughs> saw the CD on the, on the store shelf and read that. And they're like, what? It's kind of like it's kind that's a that's a classic late 90s thing to happen too because it's uh, it's also like the uh the the star wars episode one the phantom menace had a track called the fall of qui-gon i was like <laughs> oh what it's like i hope you didn't read uh you walk into your local uh i guess walk into your local borders and read the back of some oh, of the, score, <laughs> the score to the sixth sense so of course james newton howard he has been basically M. Night's guy, I mean, at least since 1999. So I watched this really interesting interview featurette that I swear is probably ripped from the, <laughs> the DVD of uh, The Sixth Sense that interviews M. Night Shyamalan and, of course, uh, James Newton Howard. And it was very, very interesting hearing all of the things at work in The Sixth Sense. Of course, he says that it was really challenging um, to make something atmospheric that doesn't get repetitive and boring, but also isn't relying upon what I call like the scary strings all the time, mm. where it's like every every big scary cue is just the the violence played backwards really fast, right. which is like just kind of like what is tropey in horror movies since basically forever. Is The Sixth Sense a horror movie? Oh, okay. That's that opens us up to an interesting discussion. I mean, I think a lot of people probably classify I would, it a horror it, thriller. It's a yeah a thriller. horror. I think a thriller. Yeah. It's, it's definitely like a character. Story. It has horror elements. And so both M Night and James Newton Howard worked together to kind of create this atmosphere. And one thing that they did particularly interesting with the score and actual the literal soundtrack for uh, the film, the sound design. So in a normal film set, like if you've ever been on a set before. At the end of maybe a take or um, if you're on a commercial per se, or if you are um, in a particularly noisy environment, your sound guy will ask for room tone. Room tone meaning you're trying to get the ambient noise of the room so that the editors later will have something to match against whenever, you know, you're trying to replicate like what is considered silence in, in the, in the room. And one thing that's interesting, um, cause room tone usually contains things like, uh, refrigerator hum, uh, air conditioner noise, mm -hmm. ambient electric static kind of noise. And what's interesting in this film, they replaced the room tone for each scene. There's no absolute 
kind of like silence because that usually that doesn't work. It just sounds bad. They replaced it with people breathing. Ooh. Yeah. So if you uh, watch watch some sequences, um, we'll put the interview feature out in the show notes because it's super, super fascinating because they they'll show the scenes with no dialogue, just the soundtrack design and then the score. And so you hear there's this part where Bruce Willis is in the school. I can't remember where Haley Joel Osment is, but uh, he's walking through the school and all you hear is just like these a, a chorus of breathing. Um, and it's like it's so subtle, but it, it just makes the atmosphere so elevated and heightened and ooh, just kind of goosebumpy and spooky. You know, I think that's one thing. If you look back at the early M. Night Shyamalan, one thing he, he, he was he was known for, and I think mastered quite well was atmosphere. I think that's something you see, of course, with The Sixth Sense, but I, see, I think you see it with Unbreakable. I think you see it a little bit in Signs as well, um, uh, creating an environment that you, you, you feel you feel the environment in the same way that I think Del Toro's get at it. Yeah. Shyamalan did it in a different way that was also effective. And then apparently he just like woke up one day and said, yeah, that stuff's terrible. Why would I do that in my movies and then stop <laughs> doing it? I, <laughs> it's um, There's really some something lost from this particular era it for me personally um in night nice films comparing them to his his works of recent day a certain amount of like subtlety and care with the subject material but that's neither here nor there um another really interesting piece from the featurette is that not only would they use like these human groans and screaming noises and all this stuff and of course they're you know mixing them together subtly to make this like underlying background track. They also did this thing where, um, so do you remember the sequence about the, the ghost guy in his underwear? Yes. Okay. Yes. Yes. Okay. So, you know, setting this, the scene for that, I can't remember what happens to him and why he dies. But when Bruce Willis Malcolm is talking with the ghost guy in this, the back track without the dialogue, it actually, they take his next line of dialogue, the ghost guy and they actually put that as part of the score and like wow. yeah they play it backwards so that like his it's it's kind of like this weird meta reading where it's like he was always fated to say that thing right because the score says it even before he does literally in wow. the film isn't that that's wild wild I that is incredible and very experimental yeah, yeah man yeah. that's fantastic yeah and and that's one thing that you know I would love to just bring home about M night Shyamalan movies is that he was always really trying to push the envelope and do something different. And I think whenever we go through the selection of today, when we get to a particular film, you'll be like, Alex, why did you include this in in our show today? And I'll be like, because he was trying to do something different, even if it didn't work. I swear to God, if Lady in the Water isn't here, you know he hates he hates critics. So I, it's just he does hate critics. I read so many interviews with him talking about Glass, and it's like, oh, no one gets me is basically the synopsis of his. that <laughs> is the story of M Night Shyamalan. I'm so brilliant. They, the audiences and the critics just don't get me sometimes. Anyway, yeah. that's another conversation. Absolutely. But, uh, well, oh, I'm excited to see what you have in store for us. Yes, yes. So going to our next track uh, seems like a very very natural fit of course we're going to be uh playing another recognizable song from another m night Shyamalan classic so take a listen Thank you. 
so Caleb, you know and love, especially this track. Uh, name that movie, of course. Well, it's Unbreakable. Yes. It, it's, this, it's the score, the theme of Unbreakable that I get chills every time I hear it. I hear it's like there's two tracks from uh, from Unbreakable that give me chills. This is the like the main David Dunn one, this one, and then there's the uh, a different version of this that plays at the very end of the movie when it's revealed that Samuel L. Jackson is actually a terrorist. Yeah, God, I'm still getting chills just talking about it. I yeah. love it. It's such, it, it, it's, it perfectly encapsulates the early 2000s. Yes. M. Night Shyamalan at his peak. Yes. The tone of that movie I associate, associate so closely with the score because I actually think the, um, again, one thing that uh, Shaman did super well in his early movies was the atmosphere. Yes. That is a very quiet, yes, very uh, quiet. atmospheric film. Lots of long takes, not a lot. There's really not a lot of sound, but that score, when it kicks in, you know st- something's about to go down. Exactly. That's one reason I really particularly like the score of this movie very much. And so follow up question, because I, I was late. I watched split first, like someone that didn't know <laughs> I watched split first. So you were like, why? Like when, whenever well, like your movie buddies, you were watching it with were like, like losing their shit. It was just like, you were just like, what? Why is Bruce Willis here? Is this, is this a six sense cameo? Oh like, my gosh. <laughs> but so for the person that's been on the unbreakable train the whole time. So, Transitioning to Split, Year of Our Lord, 2017, like, what was your reaction when you, because that cue from uh, Unbreakable was, of course, used then again in Split at the very end credit sequence. So how, what, what was that like for you? What did you think, feel when you started to hear the cue and then it went into that? This is something that came up when I was talking to to Daniel Bokemper and our review of Glass 2. It was one of the greatest movie moments, at least in the last 10 years for me. I, I don't know if it's number one, but it's up there. It's like one of the greats. M- I was like, I just got M. Night Shyamalan. Yes. But it's, it's, you got M. Night Shyamalan after we thought he couldn't do it anymore because it was, had already been, it'd been a joke that it was, oh, there's always a twist. a twist. But it wasn't a twist within the, it, within the context of the movie. It was a, tw- it was like a twist for the audience. Yeah. The audience who thought you, you thought you're watching a little weird experimental psychological thriller, but you're actually watching a super villain origin story in the unbreakable universe. Like, I mean, just head exploded. Yes. Because that was, I mean, even at that point, uh, Unbreakable was at least 15 years old, 16 years old. Yeah. So we, never thought we i never thought we were ever going to get a follow-up yeah i was like i was like oh that ship has sailed forever ago and 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 of course when i saw uh unbreakable at a a very formative age it's really stuck with me so it's a movie that means a lot to me and so when that happened i just like my my whole brain exploded i i I didn't know what to do just totally getcha in that moment so james newton howard was approached by Shyamalan to work on unbreakable after immediately scoring the sixth sense because if you want a timeline uh Six Sense, 99, uh, Unbreakable, 2000. So back to back. Yeah, it's like it's insane that I mean, he was at his peak and he I mean, that turnaround time. I don't know if he had to shoot some stuff concurrently at the same time to make that timeline work. But it sounded like nobody was sleeping a whole lot during that that point in time. And according to a, an interview uh, from uh, James Newton Howard on his process for Unbreakable, he said Shyamalan sat there and storyboarded the whole movie for me. I've never had a director do that for me. Um, and he, in Shyamalan's direction was that he wanted something very different, very distinctive, and that could immediately evoke the movie when people heard it. And uh, I think success. Home run. Home run. Absolutely. 200%. I think that theme is, it, it is iconic. Like, now that I've seen and understood the light of, of these films, I, I mean, yeah, iconic is one of... And, and we've talked a lot at length about the 
modern era of wanting to get away from themes themes the overarching motif of a film and i'm glad that someone like Shyamalan, i mean he's still using it but as you said with glass he doesn't use it at all that's this piece that is identified with this brand is like not even used in glass like hardly any right no yeah glass does not use this theme very much at all which was shocking yeah i'm sure he wanted to do something different but i uh, but i but i I guys i gotta admit i can't tell you what the score i can't tell you anything iconic about the glass score what actually has outside of the the reuse of that theme also has a very very strong score yeah there are there are the best score moments in uh glass are no, uh, like nods to those other two film scores yeah. which is uh man that's that's a shame that you can't like take those build on it make something new but still of course cite them in in the work um so they Sh- howard and Shyamalan, they chose to have a very simple I mean, a very simple in terms of like number of instruments. Um, it's not by a full orchestra by any means. I mean, it's really just strings, trumpet, piano, um, very limited in terms of like orchestral arrangement. Um, apparently, some of the compositions were even recorded in an old church in London. That's uh, That sounds like a very Shyamalan thing to do. It's like, yeah, we're going to record <laughs> record some of the score in this old church just to kind of give give the, the music a bit of moodiness that you can only get from an environment like that. Shyamalan is very into his own ideas sometimes. But uh, and here's the thing. The reason he's successful is because some of his ideas are really, really good. Like That's a really great idea, recording a, a really simplified score in a church to kind of create like a moodiness and, uh, and, and and to, to get an idea of what is this going to sound like on the screen to kind of create the atmospheric vibe we're going for, right? Yeah. And I think that's a really brilliant way to do that. Yeah. We're talking a lot about M. Night Shyamalan and, of course, James Newton Howard. He's done nine of his movies in recent history. Uh, so who composed our next uh, the track from our next film? Pretty easy. But you might not guess the film. It's James Newton Howard. It's not, and, and it's M. Night Shyamalan. Okay. But it's not the next film in his bike. Oh, no. Oh, no. We're skipping signs. We're, we're, oh, yeah. We're skipping signs. We're, we're skipping ahead. We can, we can, we can talk about signs yeah. on a, on a different show. But yeah. this okay. is, okay. this is a right. film I don't think we would ever talk about unless we were talking about M. Night Shyamalan films. Okay. Sure. Okay. So, Caleb, do you know what that movie is? <laughs> Alex? Yes. So you put this piece from the score of The Last Airbender <laughs> in the Shyamalan show. I should have known you would do that. What a twist, right? <laughs> this movie is 
Well, I just can't. The words can't describe how much I despise this movie. The score is pretty good, except the only problem with the fact that it's pretty good is that the TV show already had an incredible, like, unforgettable score that's way better than this, even though this is pretty good. Yeah. Yeah, The Last Airbender, uh, 2010's universally dunked on uh, piece of film. Basically, whenever I was talking earlier about Shyamalan was trying something different. He's like, yes, beloved children's program. I, I wish to recreate you in film with people and uh, not do it right. That's very putting it like as mildly as possible. <laughs> he called Ang Ong. <laughs> I, for- I think he even I forgot about that. Perpetual- he perpetuated racial stereotypes. Yeah. He made me like a thing I love and hold dear, closely dear to my heart less. That's offensive. That's like if someone made you like like your wife or girlfriend less because of how <laughs> awful they are. I, I I just I, I this movie is 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 offensive. This is where I started to be asked beg the question myself in twenty ten. Hey, maybe not everything needs to be adapted to live action. Maybe certain things are just better in the media that they exist in. Maybe Avatar is better off as an animated program because how are you actually going to improve it with a live action adaptation? You aren't. I'm yeah. sorry. Even if they had gotten a great director to do it, I don't think they would have topped that show because it's just it's 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 borderline perfect. I mean, not truly perfect, but like the things that aren't great about it I actually kind of find endearing. So mm-hmm. M. Night Shyamalan adapting it. He at that point, he was that was where we'd started to lose faith in him, but we hadn't given up yet because I think at that point he had made both uh, the village, which I don't think it, the village is not a train wreck. It's actually got some cool stuff going on, but I think he'd made the happening and lady in the water. Yeah, Lady in the water was six. A happening was eight. Yep. And then Last Airbender was 10. Yeah. So that was. So he was two movies, two and a half movies deep into like being like, oh man, this guy, not great. So I was curious to see how the movie would turn out. The visuals looked kind of cool in the trailers. He knew how to get some iconic moments visually down enough. But, uh, oh boy. Yeah. Offensively bad. Okay. But in contrast to how offensively bad. This movie was in general. Um, the soundtrack received near universal acclaim because it's, it's pretty good. Yeah, it is. It, it is. is. It is. Well, if you're going to look at the movie and things that worked about it, yeah, it's pretty good. Like you mentioned earlier, the biggest interesting difference is the difference in approaches from James Newton Howard and, of course, the the composers for uh, Avatar: The Last Airbender, the television program, because. Here we've got a lot of symphonic strings. We have a lot of traditional, in terms of traditional movie score type sound. Um, whereas uh, the program, the Avatar: The Last Airbender, um, had a lot more traditional in terms of instruments, um, you know, native to the areas in which they're replicating in in the program um, and using those uh, to full effect. Uh, it's, it's one of those things, again, where I think he, Shyamalan has a lot of good ideas. I think the ideas he had for, for how he was going to portray the world of Avatar uh, in the movie was well intended. Sure. He, he, the idea was right about the, bringing in different races, uh, having a one-to-one for our own world. The problem is he picked the worst ones and, and used those to kind of perpetuate stereotypes. I mean, he didn't mean to do that, but that's right. kind of what he accidentally did. Yeah. Um, but the score is great. And I think, uh, yeah, it, it does hit on the different cultures that you see in the film. There's different notes, different th- uh, themes that all kind of tie back to a central um idea in the score 
Um, but but the, the, my problem with it is, and this is no no because no, the score is very good. But but the the composer for the TV show Jeremy Zuckerman is, I mean, it's incredible. Yes, absolutely. Um, so we're going to transition away though from the last airbender thank you um, the thank flow, you. flow like we're gonna flow like water which is the name of that track uh, by james newton howard we're gonna flow like water away from the last airbender because caleb i i, I know I, I i stressed you out i stressed you out by you triggered by, me i triggered yes. you i did i did by by picking a movie that you uh deeply disliked but but i i know a way to make it better and it's a bit of a twist upon our M. Night Shyamalan show. Just hang tight, Caleb. I'll make it better, I promise. Um, you've got my attention. Yes. felt like I could honor M. Night Shyamalan in a show about his his films is twist you into not talking about an M. Night Shyamalan. Thank God we can talk about how great The Last Airbender was and how that score is incredible. And, uh, you know, I have nostalgia with this show, but not like a lot of people. The show it was designed for children, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, I didn't watch it until college just because I heard how good it was. And I was like, wow, no, this is... I think, in my opinion, should be on the level of like Star Wars, Harry Potter, or Lord of the Rings, like and how great the storytelling is, how it's like a big world globe trotting epic in this fantasy world with kids with powers and but also the characters are all very relatable. Like I, I get I got chills at least three times and started to tear up at least once when you were playing that score. Like that yeah. piece. That's how much I just yeah. think it's it's great. No, and I, I wanted to highlight and because it acts as a good compare and contrast. I mean, both of course just the actual piece of media that is you know the the content of the last airbender versus avatar the last airbender the show i just want to compare and contrast those because james newton howard i find it interesting because we opened with the opening theme uh, composed by zuckerman and win and so i kind of expected him to maybe play some homages to 
at least nods to the uh, win in Zuckerman's score. But I, as far as I listened, I didn't really hear anything that was all that similar because um, there's a certain amount of um, some native instruments, including the gugzing, the pipa, and the duduk, which uh, match the Asian-influenced setting of the show, um, that he doesn't bring into his score for 2010's film, which I found an interesting choice. Um, but yeah, I, I expected at least maybe a motif homage I wonder, or at least any, some of those instruments yeah, to kind of be more prominent. I, I'm curious, like it's one of those, and I'm sure it was a creative decision by ultimately by Shyamalan. I am curious what that conversation was like. Like, do we do our own thing? Do we yeah. kind of harken back to the TV score? I, I think, <laughs> I think they would have been much wiser to harken back to the TV score because I, I mean, the, the thing is the fans have so much and uh, so much invested and associated with that. Yeah. But at the same time, now I'm never going to associate this. <laughs> The, the score of the show with the movie. That's true. And that actually probably yields to your advantage um, in terms of that movie. <laughs> um, I, in terms of Avatar for me, I, I am one of those, uh, I feel lucky because I watched the premiere episode on debuting on New Pick Live. And I think it was, God, was that 2004 or 2005? I remember watching it on a TV that was no bigger than a... It was about 4-3 like ratio. Yeah, it was definitely 4-3. Box it was, TVs. Yeah, it was just, it was about, uh, it was no bigger than like a textbook. It was so tiny. I was watching it grainy because we, you know, were cheating the cable company. So we really shouldn't have been able to get uh, Nickelodeon, but we did. Um, so it was like iffy going in and out and i remember you know being you know an early teenager and being like wow this is something different this is something special this feels totally never seen anything like this and it was a freaking nickelodeon that it's not on toonami it's not on cartoon network which is there that's kind of they're really pushing nickelodeon has, has, has typically very conservative. Uh, very conservative and played it pretty safe yeah um, on, on stuff like this. and i feel like both avatar the last airbender and later cora both hugely push the envelope absolutely it's, it's, so it's kind of surprising to me that yeah this is a nickelodeon show yeah uh it, it's, it's yeah it's not on the anime friendly cartoon network at the time yeah um it, it's such a weird choice for nickelodeon but yet it paid off i mean tons of fans tons of critical acclaim uh and yeah i mean i don't think i have ever seen i haven't seen a show b like it b before or since avatar yeah. the last Airbender. Korra does its own thing yeah that's a lot different which, yeah which i never even caught up with Korra. oh it's also either. fantastic yeah, yeah yeah and i've heard that it's kind of one of those fantastic in its own kind of way um <clears throat> so um as you're definitely aware Netflix announced in September of la of last year um, that there's going to do a live action remake. Yeah. I, uh, holding breath tentatively. Um, well, they have the original uh, showrunners of do. the cartoon uh, who were running the show. You know, um, mixed feelings. I This is writing that whole like trend we're seeing with Disney. Like, oh, let's just yeah. recreate the beloved things in live action. And that is significantly less interesting to me than just telling new stories. Right. And I think a lot of the things, and as I mentioned earlier, one of the things that I think Avatar does brilliantly it can't be adapted to a live action. It works specifically because it's done in the, using the media of animation. Yeah. Now that doesn't mean that this live action adaptation can't do new things right. that are cool, but I, I'm personally am more interested in seeing 
them tell more new stories like the legend of Korra in that same universe. So, uh, but you know, Hey, uh, I say that, but you know, I'm going to be there the second Netflix drops the first season binging it. So, yeah. And Jeremy Zuckerman, uh, the composer has been invited back. So they have the whole original team. Um, probably a bigger budget too. Probably a huge budget. And I guess my concern in, in terms of like comparing it score wise is that, okay. So there's like a sweet spot where you like, if you look at M. Night's films, it's like in glass, you wanted to hear more of the unbreakable theme, the some of the split themes, and you didn't get enough of it there. My concern going into this live ac- action remake of Avatar by the same composer is that it's going to ape too, too hard much. on the show. Yeah. And like just really just like every moment is going to be punctuated with, oh, you like this because of nostalgia, not because we're experiencing something new. Yeah, exactly. There's like a fine line whenever you score, like how much is like a theme and appropriate, but how much can this work be like standing on its own in its own thing? Right, exactly. And that's where I, I mean, again, I I look at Korra. Uh, They have a theme that, uh, in the music, that very much evokes some of the themes from Avatar The Last Airbender, but it goes in completely in its own direction, way more like the, the Avatar The Last Airbender, the show is more of a fantasy. Uh, the Legend of Korra is more like an ex, like the, the technology's evolved. The world's kind of in like a steam, it's more steampunk. Uh, and, the, and, and the same composer did wildly different things in the same universe. Yeah. Different characters, but it all, it all still felt like it was cut from the same cloth. Yeah. So it's, yeah, it's weird though, because seeing some of those moments, in live action, if they try to recreate certain moments without the score, it's going to feel weird. But then at the same time, if they do it too hard, then you're like, oh, I feel like I'm just being manipulated. Yeah, yeah. It's like, oh, they're just aping nostalgia to make this point work. Um, yeah. I mean, of course, my heart on, you know, both Avatar uh, being translated to live action again. And then, of course, M. Night Shyamalan movies, both. It's like, I want... I want new stories. I want you to do new things. And if you need to build in this other world, that's great. But like, let's try and like push the envelope a little bit and, and do something interesting and new, but that's not derivative, you know? Exactly. And, uh, you know, that's just, this is the time we're in right now. Um, and this, I mean, I think it, yeah, I know this seems kind of a tangent, but this relates very much to film scores and how they're used to, to pull those heartstrings and channel that nostalgia. Right. Uh, but we're in a time right now where right now, everybody seems way more interested in revisiting old stories. Yeah. Using than they the do sound using cues. the same sound cues and music cues. And they do telling new stories in the, with the same world or even with the same characters. But yeah, I mean, I, I'm with you. I would rather see them do new things and, and get more experimental with the score because that's the thing that worked again about the, that score both in both series, but especially in Avatar The Last Airbender, it felt more experimental. Yeah. So I think by having him kind of recreate a score it kind of inherently goes against what Jerry Zuckerman did so well in both of those series, which yeah. is get really crazy and experimental to find a unique sound that fits that story. Yeah, it can. And it can be done. I think a very recent example of that exact formula is, you know, let's explore the lives of a character. I mean, is done in um, Better Call Saul and from the Breaking Bad. That's universe. a good, that's another great example. Yeah. yeah same, same composer, same composer, same composer uh, have, it, it feels like it's all from the same guy, but wildly different things. Yeah. Yeah. And the fact that we're, we're not punctuating, of course, you know, in Better Call Saul, we haven't seen Walter White or know his whereabouts in the show at all. Um, but like if it were punctuated with his, you know, if he came on screen and it was punctuated with the breaking bad 
music. It's like, it's like, I don't know how I'd react to that necessarily. Um, one would hope, you know, if it, it's done sensitively and positively, which I think Dave Porter has done extremely well, but that's, that's my favorite example. And like how you can like still play around in a world, you can evoke like similar tones and moods, but it's not just ripping constantly from, from the source quote, the source yeah, material. No, exactly. No, wholeheartedly agree. Yeah. Well, Caleb, uh, we've had a lot of good discussion today, so we're going to be uh, wrapping up our show for this week. Um, as always, you can follow, rate, and review the Cinematic Schematic on iTunes, of course, that helps people hear our show and tune in. Um, you can find me at Alex V. Brohannon, B-R-O-H-A-N-N-O-N, on Twitter and Instagram. Where can people find you, editor Caleb Masters? Oh, uh, people can find me over on Twitter tweeting about uh, films, video games, television shows. Uh, game of Thrones is going to be a hot thing for me this spring. That's true. So I uh, got a new uh, have a podcast about that coming out in April when the new season returns. But oh, snap. In the, but in the meantime, I am rewatching the entire show, so I'll probably be tweeting about that pretty frequently between now and April. So check that out. Uh, that's at C Masters Talk. That's letter C Masters Talk. Excellent. Well, closing out our show, we'll be followed by the track "The Avatar's Love" from Avatar: The Last Airbender, composed by Zuckerman and Wynn. Well, as always, we're Soundtrack, and we look forward to trekking with you again next month. Stay tuned, listeners, because this episode has yet to reach its full Avatar state. Keep listening to join our third audio diary with Jacob and Zachary Burns discussing the making of Shifter. and welcome back to the Cinematic Schematic. I'm your host, Caleb Masters, and in our third segment today, we are returning for our audio diary series on the making of Shifter. I'm going to be talking with the filmmakers behind Shifter, the upcoming sci-fi body horror time travel film. To my right, sir, the writer-director of Shifter, 
Mr. Jacob Layton Burns. Welcome back to the Cinematic Schematic. Hey. Going further to my right, which is technically <laughs> my left, uh, I'm also joined by uh, one of the producers, set photographer, doer of all things, social media guru, all the stuff, Zachary Burns. Welcome back to the Cinematic Schematic. Hello. Hey, guys. How you doing? Doing good. Yeah. Doing all right. Thanks for having us back. Yeah. I basically haven't seen you since the last time we, we talked on one of these. Yeah. Uh, it's, um, a lot has happened. <laughs> You guys filmed half a movie since then, right? Oh, yeah. Oh, I guess. Is, did we do that? I think so. Is that what we did? It's all kind of a blur. Yeah. Interesting. <laughs> or have you not done it yet? That's actually in the future. Oh, yeah. Time traffic. Yeah, yeah, we travel. have to get... Oh, yeah, yeah, that's right. Well, right. well we need to well, get yeah, into what, the, what's the time date? machine. And what's, then, the, yeah. what's the date? I've lost uh, track. I, I don't know what we've done. <laughs> what year is it? Yet. Oh, <laughs> yes. Yeah. <laughs> well, um, yeah, I want to talk to you guys a little bit. So last time we talked, you guys were gearing up you, you let us all know that you were breaking this production and filming into two different phases mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and phase one was more of a single location shoot. So tell me a little bit about that. How did that go? It went great. Long story short. <laughs> <laughs> great interview guys. No. Yeah, it was, um, overall it was a really fun shoot. It had, you know, all of it, the normal stresses and, uh, fires to put out and stuff like that but overall um just like the crew uh was really really great um we worked with a lot of them before um but uh, some were kind of new to us and um they all just really quickly we kind of found a, a groove like a lot of times it can take uh, hours or even days to kind of everybody kind of get in their groove but really we kind of fell into a groove pretty quickly um and we managed to um uh, pretty much wrap all our days on time or, or almost on time. <laughs> like, whoa, whoa. Uh, yeah. What, what, it, 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 so you wrapped on time. Yeah. You stayed on budget. Like how yeah. did that's the, how did you do that? I thought, I thought that was like the most impossible thing to do in filmmaking. Well, we'll, we'll see if we can do it again. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah, that's the real test. But, um, part you know, it's, it's really just a, a lot of planning ahead. Um, a lot of being quick t- to adapt when things, uh, go wrong or you're running low on time and stuff like that. So a lot of it is just being really quick to figure out, okay, we have three more scenes to shoot and we have this amount of time. What do we need to do to these scenes to make sure we get what we need, uh, but still get us out of here on time. So we're not overworking anybody. Um, so there was, you know, pretty much every day that was about half of our day was, okay, uh, we have this much time and <laughs> what, what do we need to change about these scenes um, right. uh, to fit it in? So there's a lot of, um, and this happens on every, every movie that's ever been made. You basically rewrite the movie on set uh, yes. because just things are different when you're there uh, uh, than they are when you're in your bedroom typing alone on, you know, on your software or whatever. Um, it's just a very different experience. And, um, so yeah, like there's just a lot of that. And then, yeah, just the, the crew and cast, um, if they're all pros, then they, they will adapt with you. And they also understand, um, they're really great because there were times where there's just a really good sense of camaraderie We're a smaller set. So uh, everybody was kind of there to help each other out, uh, which is, is nice. Um, once you get on like bigger sets, there's like kind of union rules about like th- these people can't touch these people's stuff and stuff like that. Uh, but on the set, there's none of that. Um, (laughs) certainly not. (laughs) So it was, but it it was nice because we could move really fast because, you know, like if, uh, Jeff, our first AC got things, got the camera ready pretty quickly. Uh, if 
Grip Electric team needed help, he could go help them. Um, mm-hmm. Help help Micah, our gaffer, set up stuff um, um, or move stuff or, or something like that. And so um, that that was that was a huge help. And then and everybody was just fun to be around. Um, there was really a lot of uh, a lot of fun times, good moments. Jack Lumber, the lumberjack, is an inside <laughs> joke that came out of that. Jack Lumber, the lumberjack. <laughs> the lumberjack. I, I, I think I might need to ask what, what, what is that about. I don't even know if I can explain I, it. Yeah, I'm, I'm not sure it's explainable. <laughs> you know, at, at a certain point on every film set, everybody is just working on fumes. Yeah. Um, so everybody just gets a little bit delirious. Uh, yeah. uh, so the jokes get. Yeah weirder and make less sense yes uh, but they're no h- less hilarious when you're on set <laughs> there was one time i don't even know why or how it started just all of a sudden everybody was going yeah yeah <laughs> so just like through the whole house you just were hearing yeah. people going yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. <laughs> i don't know i don't know where it came from it went on for like a solid minute yeah <laughs> just was this in the middle of the night was this one of the overnight shoots <laughs> it was i'm pretty sure it was night yeah it was night it, for it was sure night. Yeah. yeah it was um so yeah other than that like the shoot um, it was, it was very interesting cause it was all at one location. It was all one farm and we got very fortunate that we found a farm that had a barn and an old farmhouse that was built like in the thirties, um, right next to each other. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, there were plenty of places to park where we could hide cars and stuff like that. Uh, we could shoot the exterior anterior of the house and we could shoot exterior and interior of the barns. So we got super lucky that that was all right there. Yeah. So we could really kind of, plant ourselves and make ourselves, uh, uh, comfortable, um, and, and kind of, uh, set things up that also made things move faster because we were not have to load and unload every day. Mm-hmm. Um, we could kind of find a place to stage everything. Yeah. We'd have to move sometimes for where we were shooting, but sure. But overall stuff could still be there. Um, and then, uh, most of the scenes we shot had no dialogue. Um, yep. so that, that was a very interesting challenge that I don't think we quite, anticipated um um, just and it's going to be way different on phase two it's going to be the exact opposite um but for phase one uh we we would have i don't even know how many scenes we would have planned in a day Uh, if you looked at the call sheet you would just see this massive list of like 15 scenes or something like that which is insane a lot of scenes and there each scene would be like one eighth of a page two eighths mm. of a page or whatever. And if, if you don't, if you haven't worked on movies and the, this is all gibberish to you, whenever you're breaking down the script and stuff like that and figure out how to plan things, you look at each scene individually and you figure out how many eighths of a page this, you split the page, uh, script page into eight pieces. And so one eighth, if a, if a scene is just like a sentence long, then that's probably a one eighth page scene. If it's the whole page, then it's eight eighths, which is basically one page. Yeah, but, one page. but if it's a little bit less than that, uh, then it's seven eighths and you know, and so forth. And so it g- just gives you an idea when you're scheduling what it is. So uh, a lot of like dialogue scenes are usually like two or three pages long. Mm-hmm. Uh, Cause you got two people talking and dialogue just takes up more space on the script page. Um, non dialogue scenes, you can fit, <laughs> you could in theory fit eight scenes on one page yeah. <laughs> for all one sentence. Um, we didn't quite do that, Mm-mm. but we would shoot. So it was just very fascinating because the nice thing with the dialogue scene, two or three pages, um, it's longer, but a lot of times dialogue scenes are like people are sitting down or, you know, you, you kind of mm-hmm. set up the camera and light it and you kind of are there in that kind of scenario, lighting yeah. scenario, technical scenario for a long time. Uh, but a lot of our scenes 
were so short, um, which in theory you're like, Oh, it's nice. It's just a short scene of her walking into a room or whatever. Um, but if you have 15 of those, you have to relight restage, move everything. Like yeah. it's, a, it's a whole new thing every time. Yep. So that, that was definitely a, an ordeal to keep up. And Zachary could probably talk more about that. Cause he's the first AD. So he's in charge of scheduling and all that stuff. Like that was a massive, uh, it, it was a nightmare. It was. <laughs> so you scheduled Zach how many scenes a day? Oh, God. What was I, the most I, scenes I, you scheduled in a day? I have no idea. I'd have to go back and look. But there is probably, I think there was probably one day where it may have been like 15 scenes in a day mm-hmm. um, or something like that. And they're all just really, really tiny chunks, uh, you know, little tiny pieces of, of scenes. But, you know, it you look at them and you're like, Oh, this scene won't take long, but you know, it's, I mean, it's still going to take maybe, you know, an hour, mm-hmm. uh, per, per thing, you know, yeah. obviously it couldn't cause you can't shoot that yeah. many hours <laughs> in a day, but, yeah. but it's still like everything takes time. Cause like Jacob said, like for each scene and some of those scenes are going to have multiple shots. Um, so you're having to like set up lights, set up the camera, um, figure out the, the specific blocking of what the actor is doing. Um, and all this stuff and, and, you know, it in your head, it seems like a scene that has no dialogue and it's just an actor, um, doing a simple task, uh, in a scene, you know, like walking in, picking up a newspaper and yeah. leaving like you, you, you read that and you're like, Oh, that'll be so easy. Um, but that, you know, depending on how you're shooting it, that might be like four different camera setups. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, and and so you're you're having to light for all these different things and and just all those setups just add up and take more time um so it can actually take it can feel like it takes longer to shoot a one-eighth of a page scene than it does to shoot uh you know two three page long dialogue scene yeah and like there's kind of a famous example of a, a one one-eighth page scene in gone with the wind the entire scene just said atlanta burns and so it took him three weeks to shoot yeah, one page scene. Right. <laughs> so it kind of depends on how uh, it's like descriptive Jesus, you are it's, in the script. Yeah, it's like yeah. in the Bible when it says Jesus wept. You're like, whoa, <laughs> that was a movie. That would be like a whole ordeal. Oh, I mean, yeah, that's, right. it's probably a month long shoot. Yeah, <laughs> but yeah. or or, or a, a Tolkien novel where he has like a one page battle and then Peter Jackson makes an hour's worth of steer <laughs> battle. Yeah, you know, yeah. makes a makes a three <laughs> three hour movie. Out yeah. Of Okay, so you guys are currently between phases. So it sounds like phase one, single location, went really well, stayed on schedule. Mm -hmm. Um, Sounds like it was easier to do because you had everything right there. You had all your cast right there. You didn't have to move as much. Mm -hmm. So we're going to get to phase two in a second, but what have you guys done in between phase one and two uh, on the film? Like, what what is the break consisted of as far as shifter related work? It's kind of been a jump start into the overall post-production process. Yeah. Uh, we, we have, uh, Jacob has edited together, um, all the footage that we've shot from phase one already. Um, which has been nice cause we've been able to, you know, look at that. Obviously it's just half a movie, so it's kind of weird to watch and doesn't fully make <laughs> sense, but, but you know, we can, we can see it and kind of get an idea of the overall picture of like how, you know, how certain scenes are working together and, and stuff like that and, and potentially make adjustments 
um, mm-hmm. on how we approach phase two, which yeah. is nice. Yeah, absolutely. Like we uh, put a cut together of everything. Um, and you know, we've already kind of looked at things and been like, Hmm, I don't think that scene's necessary. So we're already like even thinking like, Oh yeah. Scenes that we just shot. Like we're already thinking, eh, that's probably not going to make the final cut. Yeah. We'll uh, probably cut that out. Um, or there might be things where, um, there's definitely points where we're like, Hmm, I'm not sure we got this information across. Mm-hmm. Um, and looking at what we're shooting in phase two, I don't think that information would come across with that stuff added in. So we're kind of like, okay, well, what do we need to do um, to, you know, do we need to add a scene? Do we need to like add a insert shot or do you, so we've been able to kind of look at like, okay, what, what are some like pickup shots or do we need to reshoot anything or something like that uh, in phase two? Um, or do we need to, um, or is it something we can, one of the scenes we were already planning to shoot, could we put that information in there or could we, you know, it's just been a really good way to kind of mold the movie. We have a clearer idea of what the movie is actually trying about to like the, the the weird thing about movies is, you know, when you go into it, you, you have to have a vision, you have to have an idea of what you're trying to make. Um, and then once you get there, you kind of realize the movie actually is in control. Um, and you can have all the ideas you want, but you kind of need to be open to what the movie is telling you it wants to be. And so, um, it's really interesting. Like even though we haven't shot half the movie, uh, I, I've been kind of surprised. I mean, Zach, I've kind of talked about it. Like the movie feels, um, has kind of a different pace than we thought it was going to have. It's, mm-hmm. it's got kind of a different, uh, feel and different kind of look and like, and, in and it's probably better than what we were trying to do. Um, hopefully mm-hmm. like, it's, yeah. um, so, and yeah, it just gives us a really clear picture of, okay, here's what we did. It did well first time. Here's what we didn't do well. How can we learn those lessons for phase two? And so I think mm-hmm. hope, ultimately I think it's going to make the movie way better splitting it up. It's, it's kind of annoying to split it up like that. Yes. Um, cause I'd, I'd much rather have it all ready to go and be, be well into post-production. But, um, yeah, I think ultimately the movie is going to be way better because of it. Cause you know, so, so after we did those cuts, I sat down and did a rewrite of everything we're going to shoot in phase two. So every phase two scene has gotten, has been rewritten at least a little bit, like even maybe just touched up some dialogue. Um, but there's some new scenes that we weren't planning to shoot. Um, there's some, um, uh, some scenes I was like, you know, what? Oh, we don't need the scene. I don't think we need the scene. Like mm-hmm. we can maybe just not shoot it. Yeah. It's been a really fascinating process that I think ultimately is going to be um, very beneficial to the finished film. You're letting the film tell you what it wants to be. So you're also, you're scheduling new scenes that weren't originally planned into next phase. Are you doing any like pickup shoots as well saying, Hey, we're going to go back and reshoot this. Or are you going to try to mitigate whatever was missing from the last, last phase by writing new scenes altogether? Um, a little bit of all of the above. Um, so we, um, are planning to go back to the farm for a day and kind of break down like, okay, here's some things. I think if we, and it's so a lot of it's just like insert shots, um, of maybe a notebook, what she's writing, maybe just make sure like we shot some, but we're watching it on the screen. We're like, ah, no, that might be kind of hard to read. Like, uh, and we need to be able to see that. So we might reshoot that. And then some things like, Oh, maybe we didn't really establish the geography of this area very well. So maybe let's reshoot something. And then some stuff we're like, you know what? I think that scene is fine, but we could add some flair to it. Like we could make it 
kind of stand out a little bit better. So uh, that's what a lot of the like pickup shots are. We are, there's one scene we're, we're going to reshoot and it wasn't necessarily that the, we, sh- it was bad the first time, but it's just like kind of watching everything together. We kind of felt like we were in this one location a lot and it was starting to feel stale. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, uh, and we thought we could reshoot it uh, in a different space um, and then maybe kind of add something to the performance, uh, get a different feel to that or something like mm-hmm. that and just kind of kind of liven it up a little bit. Um, and so that's something that's very nice because, you know, on, on nostalgia, there are some scenes uh, when we shot all nostalgia in post-production, it was like, Oh, like I wish we could try that one again or something, you know, like, so it's actually right. kind of nice to be like, okay, we actually you do have an opportunity mm-hmm. to do you, you that. You can do it again. Yeah. Yeah. yeah give uh, it that little extra. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And we can't do that for every scene, obviously, but luckily yeah. most yeah. scenes are good. <laughs> but, uh, and then, yeah. And then there are definitely other moments where we're like, okay, maybe, um, some thematic things we could maybe kind of clear up through dialogue in some of these other scenes or, um, uh, that, that aren't at the farm. And so we, yeah, kind of doing the rewrites, we've kind of, uh, adjusted those based on that as well. And there's a few scenes. So we're, you guys, uh, already know what you're going to be shooting in phase two. And, uh, you said earlier, it is quite a bit different than when you shot in phase one. Mm-hmm. So what is different about phase two than phase one? Oh man. Um, (laughs) it it really is. Almost everything is different. Um, in phase one, we were in one location for two solid weeks, um, which was fantastic. Um, uh, but for phase two, we're going to be at a different location every day. Uh, some of those days, multiple locations in a day, um, which just, uh, just means essentially you have less time to actually shoot. Um, cause you have to factor in, you know, uh, time for people to unload uh and then repack up all all of our gear every day um and then sometimes multiple times a day uh plus transportation time if we're moving to if we're being at a couple different locations but thankfully in phase two we do have um there are overall fewer scenes than phase one fewer pages and most of a lot of those scenes are more dialogue driven um whereas a lot of uh phase one was a lot of more um just visually and and more character action driven Mm -hmm. Uh, being more dialogue driven that could potentially help us but yeah it's just uh it's just logistically way more challenging than phase one i can only imagine having to move your entire crew to another location uh like you have to make i mean it really makes those takes count right like you you can't sit and do one like eight times you've got a limit but you probably have a a very limited number of times we can do that and then of course if you do have to do extra takes that would take away from other scenes right Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah yeah it's it's always a balance to to always um you know and even when we were there at the phase one at one location the whole time it was always balance of like okay here's how much time we have here's the scene you know like so you're constantly having to adapt uh, and think ahead. Um, and yeah, there are definitely times where it's like, Oh, I'd love to do, you know, at least one more take of this or something like that. But I have to think like, Oh, but this next scene is super important. And so we, yeah, it, we need more time. For exactly. That. So I need to like balance. Okay. Which prioritize really, which, which mm-hmm. scene is more important. Um, it's, it's, yeah, it's like, it's a, yeah. Like, like, like you said, it's a balancing act. Like you don't, you don't want to be like, Oh, this scene isn't important. Yeah. yeah. Um, you know, but it, it's, 
I don't know. You know, there, there's going to be, there's, there's definitely just for any movie, there's going to be scenes that are, Oh, this is, you know, thematically more important where, you know, a point is getting, you know, hit head on, um, uh, to try to, you know, carry the movie basically. Um, and, and so you want to make sure that you get those scenes right and do them the best that you can. Mm -hmm. Um, and so maybe that means you give it, try to give it a, a slightly higher priority when shooting it. Yeah, um, exactly. And yeah, and like there's definitely things that like I'm I'm trying to do to get ahead, like, you know, now going through to phase one and seeing how much adapting I had to do. <laughs> uh, now I'm trying to think ahead, like, okay, what are, may, maybe I can have some plan Bs ready for some of these scenes or maybe I can just think, uh, try to plan for less shots or stuff like that. And then one of the, big things I'm doing is I'm working with the, uh, actors. I'm setting up like Skype rehearsals and stuff like that. So I can kind of go through a lot of these scenes, uh, beforehand. And so like, ideally, um, it'd be great if like me and Nicole almost have like a shorthand on set that like, I don't have to necessarily stop and give her a ton of direction after every take. I can just say a quick few things. And like, because we've gone through the rehearsal that can maybe conjure up Mm. stuff that we did there, uh, and get us quicker. So then maybe, uh, you know, hopefully, uh, all takes are usable. Um, and, mm-hmm. and then we can, cause like, that's for me, that's also the fun part on set is, is getting to kind of experiment with the takes and with the performances and stuff yeah. like that. Um, I did feel like on phase one, we didn't get that as much because we are crammed so much cause you, mm-hmm. someone wrote it in a way that there wasn't a lot of dialogue. Um, so I wonder who that was. I don't know. Since writers, man, yeah. <laughs> put a lot of faith in the visual storytelling. They must, they must also do like, uh, be like a DP or something in there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, exactly. Um, who sounds like a guys? real jerk. Yeah. So, um, so yeah, so I'm hoping, you know, we can do some experimentation ahead of time and find some of that magic ahead of time. And then on set we can start, in a really, really strong place. So then if we only have time to do two takes or three takes, um, hopefully all three takes are great. And hopefully mm-hmm. I have a problem in post-production where there's too many great takes. Um, yeah. And so that's the problem you want. Yeah, exactly. You want to have good choices in front of you. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. And so, um, so yeah, like that's kind of where I'm at now is, is getting ready for phase two is like, again, trying to learn lessons of phase one and then also accounting for like, okay, we are shooting different types of scenes, but I need to think about here's the things we ran into. Here's the issues I ran into. Um, you know, there were definitely days on phase one where I would would have to like step away (laughs) from everybody and just like stand there and be like, Oh man, I don't know how we're going to do this. I don't know how we're going to make this day. Um, and, and then I'd walk up to him and be like, Hey man, there's no time to stand around. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, what are you doing over here? <laughs> we got a movie to yeah, make. People always found me no matter where <laughs> yeah. I hid. And they always had questions. I'm sure. <laughs> oh yeah. Oh yeah. It's constant, constant barrage of questions from everybody. Um, and it's fine. It's fine. But, um, but yeah, it can be a little overwhelming sometimes. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, no, now I'm trying to, yeah, see what things I can do to prepare ahead of time and maybe make those type of, um, adapting and stuff like that easier uh this go around which we'll see so you said a minute ago something you said that really uh sticks out to me is you were like the 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 movie is taken on a a personality or style of its own and um we'll start with you zach and work over the way our way over to jacob 
whenever that happens, it sounds like, I mean, do you guys reprioritize how you do a shoot? Like, do, does your, does your schedule change at all? Do you, do you say, Hey, we're going to emphasize these scenes and give these scenes more time versus others. Does that like when you're, when you have that break to reflect on what you've already done, you decide, actually, this is the direction the movie's going in. Do you look at your schedule? Do you guys get together, look at your schedule and say, Hey, we need to reprioritize which of these scenes a big deal. Um, kind of, sort of, um, uh, that aspect honestly doesn't affect too much logistically unless, uh, it's based in the creative aspect of it, you know, like, uh, something we have been able to do, uh, being after shooting and, and watching phase one and kind of rethinking aspects of phase two is we've kind of rethought what some of our characters are going to be, um, a little bit. Um, and, and so, and what they're doing in each scenes, how they're being introduced, yeah. um, and how they interact with, uh, Teresa, our main character. Um, and so, uh, being based in that creative aspect on, on, you know, what the characters are after and, and, and all that, um, that can change, you know, how things get planned logistically, you know, cause it can change, you know, where they are in a scene, you know, the location or, um, or what, you know, what actor they're acting with, you know, and stuff like that. So, so in that aspect, it definitely can, you know, you know, force us to, to change and update, you know, how we're scheduling things and, and what scenes we're shooting when. Um, but it's all always based in, you know, what, what does the movie need? You know, what do these characters need? Yeah, totally. And, and yeah, and, the, and there's, there's definitely a lot of consideration um, when we're scheduling. We, we do think a lot try to prioritize scenes in different ways. Like mm-hmm. there's a, a scene in particular that's like a, th- a three page scene, I think. Yeah. Um, but me and Zachary and Vinny consider it to be probably the most important scene in the movie, at least from uh, just uh, from a variety of aspects, uh, yeah. not, not just emotionally, but just also, you know, we have to also have to think about like what's going to be like the sellable scenes. Like what are the scenes we're going to put in the trailer and stuff like right, that? Yeah. And like this scene in particular, we think is super, super important. Uh, on on all levels, mm-hmm. so we really want to make sure. So even though it's a three page scene, we're probably going to, or we're going to, we're, we're going definitely to, going to spend a whole day shooting that scene. Just this one three page scene. Uh, oh. Normally, you would probably shoot like five pages, and you'd probably shoot, yeah, um, you know, four or five scenes or something like that, mm. um, which is how most of our shoot is. But this one, we we scheduled around away because we knew this scene was going to be so important and it's also going to be like from a performance angle it's going to be a really tough one for nicole like it's just a very challenging very physical uh performance and so we want to give her time uh so that she doesn't feel rushed and so um and i'm sure on the day we'll still feel rushed and still wish we had another day to do it uh but yeah like you you do think about that you do prioritize scenes um Mm -hmm. ahead of time as, as far as like okay this is all we need from this is this. We just need one shot, you know, like let's yeah, not give it as much time as we need for this scene or something like that. Mm-hmm. We'll, we'll move scenes around uh, to make sure we allow time for, um, or even in phase one, like when we shot the opening scene, I think it's like one page, but we gave yeah. it a full half day almost to shoot. Yeah. It. Um, um, and yeah, yeah, other considerations, uh, on, trying to schedule things is, is, um, I do try to, um, be aware, not of, you know, just logistically how things fit together, but also what kind of 
emotional tone each scene has. Um, if it is uh, um, emotionally going to be a kind of a heavier scene for the actors, for them to kind of put them in a, a more emotional headspace. Um, you know, I, I try to be respective of, of, of that. So then I'm not, you know, I'm not put cramming too many heavily emotional stuff on one day, or I'm also not, I won't schedule, you know, uh, something that requires the actor to get into that kind of headspace, you know, for day one mm-hmm. of the shoot. Like I'll, I'll put that, you know, um, you know, either more in the middle or more towards the end. So then they're, they're kind of in a groove on, on set and, uh, and also, so it, you know, can just help them get to that headspace, um, a little better. Um, yeah. Yeah. So yeah, absolutely. Yeah. There's the, the, the couple of characters, the lead character, Teresa, and then another character, Blake. And, um, one thing we really want to make sure we do is cause th- throughout the movie, they meet each other and then get closer and closer, mm-hmm. uh, uh, by the end. So like, you know, you don't always have this luxury. Sometimes you have to shoot it out of order, but we're, when we're looking at the schedule, we really think about like, how do we make sure that the scenes where they're the closest and most comfortable with, with each other are the last scenes that we shoot with them, yeah. um, uh, together rather than the reverse. Cause you know, like that they, they've never met, they live in, you know, two different you know, states. states. Yeah. And so, and they've never met. And so, um, we'll, we'll do rehearsals with them, but through Skype, you know, it's not quite the same. So we want to make sure that like those scenes where they're supposed to be the most comfortable with each other are, they're the most comfortable with each other in real life. Everybody about the mm-hmm. chemistry yeah. and yeah. the shorthand. Yeah, exactly. For and so sure. again, you don't always get to do that. Um, and who knows if we'll actually get to do that. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but that's, you know, that those are things that we try to, you, you, when you're scheduling, mm-hmm. there's like, so many factors that you have to think about. You have to think about actor schedules. You have to think about all the stuff we've already talked about. You have to look at like location availability. Like there's some Mm -hmm. locations that we're not going to be able to, you know, we would love to shoot him for 12 hours, but we're not going to be able to just because they're not available. Um, Yeah. um, Or um, we're going to be shooting in a factory. Well, the factory is going to be a functioning factory where workers are actually trying to get the jobs done. So we're going to around them. So yeah, like uh, um, there's, and so, and then you also have to think about like bathrooms. You have to think about like, yeah, like, where are people going to go to the bathroom? Yeah. Where are people going to eat when we break for lunch? And, yeah, and, exactly. Or when people, if they're not on set, where are they going to be? Like, yeah. they can't just wander around. Like we need to have a space for them. Yeah. Um, yeah, exactly. So it's just, you know, I don't, Zachary's doing most of that. <laughs> I don't, yeah, it's I great. don't envy him at all. <laughs> 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 I get to do the cool, fun stuff like shot list. Um, and then I'll, once he kind of does a, uh, he'll go through a pass and try to figure out things. You know, a lot of times when you're making the schedule, the first time you, you make it in a way that just, it seems very logical. Yeah. Uh, uh, but then once you start getting into all these other factors, um, uh, all of a sudden your schedule looks less logical. Like, Oh, we're going to shoot. Yeah. Uh, at this location for part of a day, but then we have to go somewhere else because that location becomes un- unavailable, but we have more to shoot there. So we'll have to come back the next Later. day and yeah. shoot it, you know, like, and so stuff like that, we'd rather shoot it all in one day, mm-hmm. but we might not, yeah, might not have that luxury. Luxury. So, you know, it's yeah. like uh, when Tom Cruise and Mission Impossible Fallout has to jump out of that plane, <laughs> they could do one take a day and did it for 30. They're like, son, yeah. why can't you just set every time we hit the button? Come uh, yeah. On. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Like you have the limited window of time, though. But I mean, yeah. so I think that just goes to show, though, that's a that's a that's a logistical not issue, but a, 
a logistical challenge for all filmmakers, totally. no matter if it's a mm. $200 million movie or uh, a small yeah. little independent film like you guys are putting together. Yeah. Like it's, it's interesting whenever I listen to interviews with, you know, even like Christopher McQuarrie on like fallout and stuff like that. Like it's crazy because the stuff they talk about and the challenges they face or exactly what we're facing yeah. as well. Like they get a lot more time to solve their problems and a lot more money, but, right. but they still run into the exact same problems that we run into, which is interesting. And actually like, there's sometimes like we assume a lot of things, but like uh, on, on Twitter, Christopher Corey, like answers a lot of Q and A's and stuff like that. And someone asked how long they had to shoot this one scene of Tom Cruise running. And he said, we only had 20 minutes. Yeah. Yep. And it's crazy. And you're like, Whoa. <laughs> so you basically have they're just sh- like us guys. Yeah. <laughs> You're like uh so you have one maybe two shots go. Yeah, yeah exactly. Mm-hmm. And it's just yeah, it's crazy. So it's 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 fascinating. You run into this everywhere and it's always a challenge and you know the 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 cool thing about it is at the end of it there, there you get a movie. There's a movie at the end of it. Um, yes, hopefully. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> um and it's something we can look back, you know, like I actually Rewatched Selection Nostalgia the other day. Uh, partly, you know, it was, it was kind of a. Or you, were you were, were you nostalgic? Oh, <laughs> oh. I'm sure you've never heard of that one before. Oh. <laughs> I don't get it. Um, yeah, it was it was kind of it was a little bit nostalgia, and then uh, uh, also just a little bit to be like, have we grown as storytellers and filmmakers? <laughs> like, what you know, what what, what you know, and it, it, I, I really wanted to see like what did we do well on that, and what did we not do as well. And, and kind of like the phase one stuff, like, you know, what, what can I learn from that? Um, and, um, it was really fascinating. It was really an interesting learning experience and, um, it's not a bad movie. <laughs> it's pretty good. Yeah. I mean, it's pretty it. good. It's not perfect. But I'm proud of it. Oklahoma yeah. film of the year winner. 2016 2016 yeah 2016 yeah yeah i mean come on not not bad not that bad yeah and honestly one one of the biggest things we learned we knew we were super lucky with that movie just how things kind of came together and like yeah we got really lucky with locations and stuff like that uh and uh, i think working on this one we maybe as lucky as we knew we had been we kind of underestimated how lucky we really had been like for sure um there's been a lot of um nothing like catastrophic but just like a lot of things kind of just fell into place on nostalgia and a lot of things haven't fallen into place on shifter a lot of things have mm-hmm. but i don't want to i don't want to oh say yeah it's a lot of things have, have really come together very nicely but it it seems like it's been just the tiniest bit more of a, a struggle yeah to get yeah. there yeah exactly um and then uh so that, that that was an interesting lesson and then um and then just a lot of things just for me like as a director like i think i've learned a lot um, about kind of visual storytelling and stuff like that. Like I thought, uh, in nostalgia, I thought a lot of the, uh, dialogue scenes and stuff like that. I thought I was actually really impressed with myself. Um, with those, there's still absolutely room to grow, but, um, some of the like visual storytelling and some of the kind of constructing sequences and actually like that, that's partly why I wanted to write shifter in such a way that it was so, uh, lacking of dialogue was I kind of wanted to build up those skills of how do I kind of build atmosphere a little bit better with the camera, with the performance and stuff like that. And so, um, I think there's been a huge jump, uh, in that between nostalgia and shifter, just watching the footage. Uh, and then just like production value wise, it's a major jump in that. Of course we're using much, 
uh, yeah, one of the things we've gotten super lucky on is this, the camera we're using and uh, our, oh, yeah. our crew. We got a much bigger crew, so not so much dependent on me and Zachary having to do everything. Um, the, the, that's been a dream. Uh, just having you know someone who can pull focus for me is like amazing. <laughs> yeah, uh, uh, and so I can focus that much more on performances. And so there's a lot of like small things like that, like a lot of small lessons that um, I think. Shifter is definitely a big step up in uh, quality for us, even some of our other short films that we've done recently and stuff like that. I think it's going to feel like a big step up uh, from our other stuff, hopefully. Fingers crossed. We've still got another, we still got half the movie <laughs> <Yeah>. to shoot. <laughs> All right. Well, gentlemen, uh, this has been a great talk. I think we're uh, about out of time for the evening. Uh, anything else you would like to tell the listeners about where you're at with Shifter as you move into phase two? Follow us on Twitter. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Uh, Uh, Money. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, So gentlemen, this has been a great talk. Uh, Unfortunately, we are out of time Um, though. If listeners want to keep up with uh, shifters development outside of this lovely audio diary, we do once every couple of months um, or maybe they want to financially contribute to help this uh, time travel body horror film happen. uh, Where can they keep up with you guys online? Uh, yeah, they should definitely check out shifterfilm.com. Uh, that's a pretty cool place to be, I've heard. Um, or you can check us out on Twitter and Instagram at shiftermovie. Uh, and you can like us on Facebook. Thanks, guys. And where can they find you guys personally Ooh. doing Ooh. stuff on the interwebs? Ooh, if you want to go that deep into things. Um, the dark web. The dark web, yeah. Uh, that's where <laughs> whoa, whoa, I hang whoa, out. Whoa, whoa. <laughs> it, it, this, is, this, uh, this is the, what is it? This is Unfriended. Was this actually an Unfriended <laughs> sequel? You're telling them to go watch the dark web movie? Uh, yeah. yeah, it's a sure. masterpiece. Um, I have not seen it. Um, uh, yeah, if you want to follow me on things, uh, you can... Uh, find me on Twitter and Instagram at Left Eye Burns. Um, yeah, and that's me. Or I'm uh, LeftEyeBurns.com if you feel like checking out Ooh. the website. Whoa. And you're developing, uh, you're making a lot of posters these days. So I try to. They're, they're pretty rad. Pretty oh. rad. Check oh, it out gosh. at LeftEyeBurns.com. Jacob, how about you? Uh, yeah, you can find me on Twitter and Instagram uh, at BoomDigaDown. Um and then yeah those are the best places just follow him there and uh ask him where boom digging down came from <laughs> please, someone please tweet at him and ask him <laughs> all right uh everyone and of course you can keep up with the cinematropolis uh on facebook at facebook.com forward slash the cinematropolis or on instagram and twitter at the cinematrop or you can just head directly to our website the cinematropolis.com and if you've enjoyed this talk make sure to uh subscribe and rate by rating you help the show get discovered by listeners just like you Oh, and listeners, we're going to be talking about Oscar films and uh, stop motion films next month. So don't miss it, guys. We'll talk to you next time. Thank you for listening to this month's episode of the Cinematic Schematic, the official podcast of thecinematropolis.com. If you enjoy the show, head on over to Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast app to leave us a rating and a review to help this show get discovered by listeners just like you. And if you really enjoyed it, please make sure to share the show with your friends and give us a retweet and a share on social media. 
This has been a Planet Thunder Productions co-production. The cinematic schematic score was produced by Vinnie Hogan, and the program was hosted and produced by Caleb Masters. This month's film review was hosted by Caleb Masters and Daniel Bokemper. Soundtrack was hosted by Alexander Bohannon with featured selections from The Sixth Sense, Unbreakable, 2010's The Last Airbender, and the Nickelodeon TV show Avatar The Last Airbender. We'll see you all again next month when we return with our full prediction show for the 91st Academy Awards. Don't miss it. <laughs>